Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste have a sound effect. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic. I contribute to Slash Film. With me, as always, is my uh, far more professional, far more intelligent, far more interesting co-host. William, why don't you introduce yourself? Zeeble Zorble! I'm a blinky blank! <laughs> He's far more dignified as well. Yeah. Uh, hey, everybody. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Uh, I write for Slash Film. I write for The Rap. Uh, and uh, everybody calls me Bibs. And we are... Uh, we're back. We're reviewing... Boy, are we reviewing some movies. Uh, we, we got another two-week catch-up episode for you. Yeah, uh, you, you went out of town for I went, a week. I went out of town, so we were unable to record. I was. Yeah. Uh, it, it was the Thanksgiving holiday week. Yeah. And I went, out to, uh, went into another state to visit family that lives yes. there. State of denial. Uh, no, not, not the state of denial. Okay. I, I was very open to everything. That's nice. Uh, here's the way it works. With airplane tickets. Mm. First of all, it sucks. Yes, everything um, about it. I, I'm old enough to remember when you could just sort of walk straight up to the gate. Um, I'm also old enough to remember when airports were like, because of that, were really austere. Mm. Like you couldn't get things at the airport. Now you can get anything. Mm. So I'm you can't get books anymore. What are you talking about? There's like Vromans. There's tattered <laughs> covers. It's in L.A. In L.A. In LAX, there's, there's a Vromans. I think there's a Vromans. At the there, last, there's, there's a, the last there's dozen like a, times I've been to LAX, there have been no bookstores. There have been a handful of recent, probably very salacious bestsellers. Oh, at like a the new, newsstand, well, yeah. I hesitate to call it a newsstand. It's mm. more of a snack stand now. Yeah, it's mo- mostly snacks. But yeah. point is, you, if you forget... They used your, to have bookstores, and now it's, now it's less common to find them. I, I still see bookstores plenty. It was... Uh, but. Back when I was a child, uh, uh, way, you know, several decades ago. Um, back in the 50s. I, 40s. I was born in 1810. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, you couldn't buy, like, it was difficult to buy things even like toothbrushes and floss. Like, if you forgot mm. your toothbrush, you were kind of SOL. So I'm still yeah. in that mindset, even today, of packing everything. Like, you get yeah. everything in your bag, because you're not going to be able to get it. Like you forget it, it's just at the airport now. I I, uh, I try to but, remember, never never forget something expensive like your phone charger because they'll get yeah. you for that. And they have like yeah. vending machines with phone chargers in yeah. them now because they but know they're not cheap. Do that. They're not cheap. Uh, but plane tickets are so difficult to get. We were able to fly to our destination one way, coming back, no direct flights back to Los Angeles, yeah. which was weird because this is Los Angeles. Yeah, we found out that one of the flights we wanted to take had a layover in Las Vegas. Ah. So it's like, okay, why don't we just... It was actually cheaper to fly into Las Vegas, pay for a hotel, rent a car, and drive home. Yeah, you can do that in a day. Than it was to fly direct. Yeah. So we just folded an extra day into our vacation, spent the night in Las Vegas, and spent spent a little time in Vegas. That's very cool. Did you you play the the tables? Didn't... Well, we had our eight-year-old with us. 
That doesn't mean he can't play the tapes. So, <laughs> when I was a kid, my so parents... So we, we didn't do, like, the grown-up stuff. Like, uh-huh. not a lot of drinking, not a lot of gambling. Uh-huh. When, I was a, when I was a kid, my parents took me on a vacation, or their vacation. They dragged me on their vacation, basically, because they couldn't leave me alone, because I was, like, five or six. Uh, I, I guess it was six or seven, actually, but mm. I'll explain why I know that in a second. Uh, they took me to Lake Tahoe. Mm. Uh, which had a casino, and we stayed in a hotel with a casino, and kids were not allowed on the casino floor, but... You could stand at the edge of the casino floor. you could, but more than that, because they don't want you to be able to go anywhere without being tempted to gamble, you did have to walk through the casino to get to, like, the lobby. Uh Uh-huh. So I'm walking through the casino a couple of times, and I was like, wow, it's so glitzy. There's all these mechanisms and all these bright lights and loud noises. And as a kid, it just sounds like an arcade. It sounds awesome. Yeah. And I keep telling my mom, could you just please one slot? Just do one slot machine. I've seen it in movies. And finally, the last day, we're leaving. And I said, just one. And my mom says, fine. I'm going to show you how easy it is to lose. And then the gods heard that. <laughs> she put like one nickel in a slot machine, pulled it, and they won like 50 bucks. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so that's why I'm a gambler today. No, I'm actually never never got good at it. No, I, I remember um, the, the first time I put my own yeah. nick, like my own quarter into a slot machine. This was back when they actually had slots and not those little p- slips of paper. Um I remember pulling the handle, and I lost. Yeah. And, I lo- and I was prepared to. I wasn't expecting to win. Sure. I just, I'm 21 now. I can gamble. I'm going to do it. And I pulled the handle. It, yeah. The three little spinners spun. Mm-hmm. Kerchunk, kerchunk, kerchunk. And I expected there to be like a buzzer. Or yeah. like, eh, you lose. Yeah. Too bad. It's like, and if it was that, the quarter would have paid for itself. You yeah. know, it's like, I got something out something of it. Something satisfying. I, I got like a light went on. Something happened. Yeah. That nothing happened was the most disappointing part. So, um, oh, you just... Okay. That's just dead. Okay, bye. It's like, yeah. that was it. I'm done. I think they want you to, like, pursue the good noise. Like, the good Skinner box. Yeah. The one, the other, the only other thing I remember about that trip... And we'll get to the movies. We know you've been waiting. <laughs> we we don't get to... It's been two weeks. It has been a week. It we has we been, get like, to have a tangent right here at the start. Been a, it's been a while since we've actually been in the same room. And also, my uh, my good computer uh, got got messed up. And so, that's actually a way... Oh, and unfortunately, because my backup computer uh, isn't up to like the latest operating system and can't be, a lot of my templates are messed up. So we're a little backlogged on uh, some of our Patreon podcasts. I'm sorry about that. When I get that back, hopefully this weekend, I'll be able to post a few things right away. And I'm sorry about that. But anyway, the only, what you're really here for is the Lake Tahoe anecdotes. So the only other thing I remember, and this is tells you a lot about me, uh, is they had a room. For for thank you Dante he just jumped off the thing my cat they had a room for kids uh-huh. where like your parents are gonna go out gamble drink make b- big mistakes uh, and we're just gonna put you in a room and there was one beleaguered hotel employee oh no whose whole job was just to be there and their whole thing was oh, we're just gonna show you a movie and that was where I discovered the wonders of the movie mannequin. Which they showed to like oh, six year olds. No. There's so many sex jokes in that movie. It was mm. so inappropriate. I, all of them went over my head. I was absolutely charmed. I thought everything about it was the coolest. I thought Meshach Taylor was like the, the most awesome human being who ever lived. It was the best. <laughs> so, Mannequin, thank you. Lake Tahoe, thank you. Moving on. This week on Critically Acclaimed, we got some catching up to do. As we said, we're reviewing the new movies Wish, Napoleon, Saltburn, Maestro, Leo, 
American Symphony, Good Burger 2, May, December, and Do Not Disturb, a fair number of films. It's a bit. We're catching up yes. on last week. Uh, and I, even though we usually start with the biggest movie, but here I think we're, we should start with the movie that was supposed to be the biggest. Yeah. And... Well, that I, didn't really work. You, might, I think you, might, you could argue every film is trying to be the biggest. Uh, that's true. But I think a lot of people expected it to take the weekend. Hmm. And it didn't. No, and that was very we, interesting. We didn't see the number one film, which is uh, a Hunger Games film that I don't give two shits about. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm as curious as I am about every movie, hmm. but I wasn't able to see the advanced screening. Uh, it was the holidays. I couldn't get out to see yeah. it. So I'll, I'll see it eventually, yeah, the, the, but the I wasn't able to. The Hunger Games, A Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Which is admittedly a fun title. It's a fun title, yeah. although that, that world has... like it, I have no interest in, in that series. And I saw the previous four films, mm. uh, and the idea that these teenagers being forced to fight each other to the death to distract people from uh, their, their horrendous... Um, Living situation, it's, it's, their poverty, it's just and their gladiator starvation. Yeah, yeah, it's a gladiator arena. Yeah, yeah. Um, so much of that series is devoted to the pageantry that it becomes about the pageantry and yeah. not about the fact that teenagers are killing each other. Yeah, like, and you know that the character is then being manipulated to be like a mouthpiece for the revolution later on. Yeah, can we get to the actual like harrowing bits of this is unjust? Yeah, like maybe something like the Running Man that feels a little bit ironic. That, that tone never enters that series. So I, I, uh, I interviewed, it feels like it's really misguided. I interviewed, I think it was Francis Lawrence. Yeah, I interviewed Francis Lawrence once. And uh, we, it was when one of the later films was getting made. And uh. We were talking about how some people were like, yeah, because all we want is like more of the Hunger Games. We need to do another movie that maybe an earlier Hunger Games so we can see more Hunger Games. Mm. And his thing was, people know that they're supposed to be bad, right? <laughs> like they're not good things that yeah. happen. We shouldn't be... We, a Hunger Games is going on. We should probably be upset. Yeah. Uh, so that whole that whole series is fucking weird. Yeah. Also, Battle Royale. Yeah, we, we, Just yeah, see Battle Royale. Well, see Even the, and the sequel, which is actually, I think, mm. aged well. Or, yeah. or or any gladiatorial mm. science fiction film. There's a lot uh, of them. See, uh, right. Series 7, The Contenders. Unappreciated. Oh, yeah. Underappreciated. I like Series 7. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, the big film... The, the supposed one that I think you're referring to yeah. is the new Disney animated picture. It's yeah, called, it's called Wish. Yeah, they're and, they're hoping for a new Encanto and not a and not a new Strange World. Uh, yeah, um, Disney was like riding high, then they killed the goose that laid the golden eggs because mm. they they just crashed and burned in the yeah. last couple of years. Here, uh, well, they've they, made uh, numerous very expensive bombs. I know the the pandemic had a lot to do with yeah, that. Yeah, um, only so much you can do about that. I, be, I believe yeah. both Onward and Turning Red are like among the biggest bombs of all time, and that's because neither of their faults. <laughs> Uh, fault yeah. or not, they lost money for the studio. Yeah. And, um, I just think that's circumstance. Yeah. You know, history yeah. will look back and go, well, can't really blame the movie on that one. You know, that's yeah. just life. Just uh, unfortunately, it's on a list now of one yeah. of the biggest money movies. Uh, but it'll have time. an asterisk next to it, is my mm. point. Uh, and and they, uh, they came out with their centennial film. This was yeah. like the 100th anniversary of the studio. Uh, it sets itself up at least at the very end to be connected to other mythologies from previous animated features which a is the little, weakest part of it a little um, yeah there's a lot of references but, that's for sure mm. little easter eggs here and there and like yeah. tons of movies some some obscure some not uh if they wanted to have like a celebration of the company and no company is better at quite frankly autofellatio than <laughs> 
than Disney. They they <laughs> love very proud of they themselves. love to talk about how much they love Disney. They put out musical mm-hmm. albums, how they love Disney. Disney is a genre as well as a studio. The Wonderful World um, of Disney, the TV mm-hmm. series that Walt Disney hosted for many years and they brought it back in the eighties, was literally just a weekly reminder to audiences of how great Disney is. Mm-hmm. That was the whole point. We're just telling I, you how great Disney is to your face. There there's no other studio that I can think <laughs> of that does it to this degree. No. Uh, they they love to celebrate themselves and remind you of the things you used to like as as a child. I've always resented that about Disney. Oh yeah, that they uh, they you know they make enter a lot of these animated films are very appealing to children. Children uh, buy the video cassettes or DVDs yeah. or whatever, and the toys or on, and the T-shirts, and, and and they just watch these films over and over and over yeah. again. And it, depending on who you ask and what age they were when they were like maybe seven or eight they're yeah. gonna have like a, a disney, disney animated film that's their that. favorite sure. it, was, it was really weird to see that happen with something like hercules which came out when i was in, in college yeah because you were like, kind of over it it's like okay yeah. I'm, I'm done with that and now you know a younger generation comes up oh that was the good one this big yeah. th- that that was the one i grew up it always amuses me when they glom on to uh like one of the good ones that maybe wasn't a huge hit like mm-hmm. lilo and stitch or rescuers down under which yeah. those are good movies but like they were not big at the time yeah yeah, yeah. so I, that makes me happy yeah. I, the one thing i will say about that is it's one thing to be self-congratulatory mm-hmm. but at the very least they do care about their history they, 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 paid, uh, they ignore a lot of it, but they do care. Yeah, they do care. Say, no, not everyone's going to celebrate no, everything. Yeah, they're, they're, you know? they're Universal were... Studios doesn't have, you know, all of their... They have a theme park as well. Yeah. But they don't have, like, rides to every great Universal Studios movie. Exactly. You know? yeah. But, but yeah, I, I've what I resent most about the whole Disney approach is they, they don't just uh, appeal to kids. Mm. They try to own it. Monopolize they try to own, the like, like yeah. Disney is your childhood. Yeah. We, we own a piece of that. Your pleasant memories are now part of this uh, corporate transaction. And mm. I, I hate that. Um, and there are very few studios. And I think because people are trained about this mm. where, and I'm not talking about smaller studios that like have a very specific and they only put out like one or movie a year or something like studio Ghibli. There are very few large studios that people would say something like, hey, what's your favorite Warner Brothers movie? Yeah. Uh, but they, they'll say Disney because yeah, Disney is so branded. Yeah. You know? D- Disney is very, very careful about their branding. And there are smaller specialty houses. Like, I, I like Spectre Vision movies. Sure. Uh, I like A24 movie. You know, yeah, they, they that, tend that's to, one of the to, exceptions, yeah. I think. You know, that's another um, one. Yeah. Th- there are some studios that, you know, have a, a bit of an imprimatur that you can latch on to. Mm. Um, all of that sort of corporate mentality yeah. that has always gone hand in glove with Disney and that it's the element about the studio that I've always hated the most yeah. uh, is weirdly subverted in this movie yeah. but in a way that doesn't feel self-aware. I think it's an accident. Yeah, it's, it's very strange. It's So the, the, the villain in Wish is a character named King Magnifico. He's played by Chris Pine. Hmm. And he has uh, founded his this kingdom, a this magic med- kingdom, magical kingdom. It's in a Mediterranean island uh, called uh, Rosas, mm. and he is also a sorcerer. He can uh, cast spells, and his specialty spell is he can essentially like Mola Ram in uh, <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. He can reach into your chest and pull out all of your ambition. Your wish. And, yeah, your wish. And that they refer to these as your wish. And um, there's an element where he, when he pulls out what your wish is, you kind of go a little bit like gray and tired, but that's yeah. not really explored very well in this movie. No, not especially. But, uh, but, but what he does is it, it, it appears in the form of these like little crystal balls and he takes them into his magical wizard tower yeah. and just stores them there. And this sounds like 
a, an evil thing. It but, is. But it's it's sold to people as a great thing. Because people would mm. come to Rosas with their wish, and they would give their wish to this sorcerer for safekeeping. And then he would take that wish, and every once in a while he'd grant one. Mm. But mostly he'd just hoard them. And everyone else would be like, oh, thank God, I don't have to worry about that wish anymore. Mm. I can go about my business working for this magic kingdom. Yeah, there, there was no... And mm. yeah, they don't explore like what the citizens are doing without their wishes. Like, yeah. are, are they kind of content but they're only content because they've been robbed of this you know yeah. this dream that they've had uh and king magnifico is depicted as a villain mm-hmm. he's and Unequivocally, as he, yeah. he gets a little bit uh power hungry and you're uh partway through the movie he starts realizing that he can essentially eat the wishes and get more powerful mm-hmm. uh he has a book of dark magic yeah in a glass case that he ends up uh was going to open before the end of the movie he's very vain yeah uh I walked out of this movie, and uh, the first thing my wife said was, this, this is what happens when you give too much power to a himbo. Uh, is Chris he, is, Pine plays it well. Is he the first himbo Disney animated villain? Oh, oh no, Gaston. Gaston. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was what about am I to thinking? Say. What am I thinking? See, if Gaston was a wizard, this is not a More, more or less. Yeah. Um, the main character is... Uh, oh, what is the character? She's played by Ariana DeBose. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, oh. Uh, the uh. The character is not important because the yeah. character has no real character. I'll, I'll look it up. You you, you continue um, describing the plot. Hold on. Uh, Asha. I was just thinking that. Yeah, Asha. Okay. Asha is the character's name. Yeah. Um, she's uh, about to celebrate her 18th birthday. She's going to mm. go through... Uh, 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 um, I said an internship, an audition uh, process. And, uh, yeah, she's going to audition to be audition to be his his assistant, King Magnifico's assistant. King Magnifico's assistant. She goes in. He sings a song. She sees all the wishes. She's very dazzled. She says, "Hey, my I think it's her grandfather. Yeah. Uh, just turned one hundred years old. He's been waiting decades for you to grant his wish that you've take you took from his chest a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, will you grant his wish?" And he's like, "No, I don't do that. I just sort of keep wishes. In fact, you're fired." Uh, well, what he specifically says is he looks at the wish and he just says, oh. Oh, that's right. This is too dangerous, he Yeah, says. this is a dangerous wish. This is too vague. Mm-hmm. This could undermine me or the kingdom. And his wish was to write an inspiring song. Mm. But inspire what? Rebellion? <laughs> it must be quashed. Mm. And so he refuses to do that as he uh, will indeed. And he says, most of these wishes I will never grant. Yeah. I will only grant the wishes that are harmless to me or will benefit me. Uh, and... Yeah, so she's she's upset about that, mm-hmm. and she sings a big power ballad about it, and then she calls forth a wishing star. She wishes upon a star, and the star is a, a little, the most toyetic thing that, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, Disney's really good about the toyetic thing. It looks like the star that, mm-hmm. like, hated its life from the Super Mario Brothers movie. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, L- Luma. Yeah, it looks like Luma, mm-hmm. like, a, like a palette swap Every Luma. day we die a little more, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it so, looks it looks like that thing, but it's mute. It flies around. It's cute little uh, little uh, critter, and it uh-huh. sprinkles fairy dust on animals and on trees, and they come to life. Yeah, they, uh, animals can talk. It, now. it has the ability to grant wishes, but it has no uh, no selfish ambitions. And using this star, she's going to break into the wizard tower. Mm-hmm. With uh, she also has a colorful retinue of best friends who also have like mm-hmm. a line apiece. One character mm-hmm. trait each. Yeah, more or less. I like the sort of dude guy, like the, the Meet the Deedles character, somehow <laughs> broke into this movie. Uh, they're going to break into the Wizard Tower or steal back the wishes. That's the yeah, plot of the give movie. Give them back to the people. Yeah. At least they'll be, have a chance to make them and, happen. And, for and, and meanwhile, King Magnifico realizes, oh, I can absorb these wishes and become more powerful and yeah. take over the world. And he becomes like more villainous as the film goes on. And that's the gist of it, really. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you, the, uh, 
Yeah. No, no, you go ahead. It, the story is thin, and it kind of sucks, and the yeah. characters aren't really colorful. And that, that's another big issue with a lot of these sort of big Disney pictures is they are, they're very broadly appealing. Yeah. The, the animation is fine. It's like two, a mixture of hand-drawn I found and, it kind of bland and forgettable. Yeah, like, honestly, and, it just didn't look very interesting. Well, and that's, that's a big problem with a lot of these Disney pictures yeah. in general is that they're kind of bland and forgettable. They're the dominant paradigm that yeah. everyone else must subvert. They sit the bar and everybody else can now steer clear yeah, of they that. They can get lazy yeah. about it, yeah. So yeah, they're, they're just sort of sleepwalking. And I'm sure this was an expensive production. Not a lot sure. of people worked very hard on it and they Not worked sure. very hard on something very bland. Uh, so the story is not engaging. The characters aren't terribly engaging. The design is a little bit plain. The songs uh, aren't very good. The songs are, aren't really memorable. And uh, they're trying to pay um, homage to a lot of previous Disney films. The Wishing Star, it's implied at the very end, is the same one from the film Pinocchio in the 30s. Which is nonsense because if you watch Pinocchio, the wishing star was literally the blue fairy. It was the blue fairy. So. Yeah, that was the the star well, moves you know, closer to the window remember, and that's the blue fairy. Remember when the giant tremor cracked open and the little <laughs> little tremors came out? It's In like, Tremors 2 Aftershocks? Yeah, yeah. it's, it's like yeah. the evolved form of the star. It turns into a blue fairy. So it eventually yeah. like cracks open. Ah! Yeah, yeah. And the blue fairy just comes out. Ooh! Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I love it. There's a corpse of the star there on the ground. That makes sense. That, that makes perfect sense. I, I, makes <laughs> sense. Here's the thing with this movie. There's, well, there's a lot of things with this movie, and I'm, well, I want to talk about the big one in a second, but um, just on a basic level, it, it's all plot. Mm. The characters are, exist because we have this high concept for the plot. The plot doesn't even make a lot of sense, mm. but Asha, what does she want? She wants people to have their wishes. What's her wish? Mm. We don't fucking... It, it's it's relevant. Yeah. It's like eventually her wish is to give other people back their wishes, but that's not for her. She doesn't well, have a personal ambition. She's purely selfless, and that means she has nothing of herself. Her baby goat gets the, the voice of Alan Tudyk, which mm. wouldn't we all kill for that? But what does the goat want? What does the goat try to do? Nothing. It's just there to talk. Mm. It doesn't have any... It's not trying to help or anything like that. It's just there. The other characters... Like, there's one guy, and I, I sympathize with this guy because he... Gave away his wish, and he's just asleep mm. all the time. Can barely. He's like that one hunky guy from the movie Summer School. Like you have <laughs> to expect to find out. Like hey, he's got a night job stripping, but like he's got a bit of an arc, and I appreciate that. But like most people, they just flitting about, mm. just doing what the movie demands of them. It's not about the, one of the things that was great about Encanto is that all of those characters are distinctly defined, even mm. the ones who don't have a lot of screen time. They have their own. Uh, they don't just have their own look. They have their own style. They have their own uh, way that they move. They have their own uh, desires and ambitions and flaws. That's that's not here at yeah. all. It's just completely just perfunctory. Let's get through this plot as efficiently as we can, and that sucks. It's not interesting. It's mm. not fun. It's not involving. Why should I care? Yeah. I don't. But <laughs> on top of it, even, even the songs are plot based. Yeah, like mostly, they're, which it's not entirely. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah. I'm trying to remember them now. There's there's <laughs> the villain song, which is conceptually okay, but not actually that good. Mm. Uh, there's the big wish song that Ariana DeBose belts, even though it doesn't mean anything. There's a uh, we got a start a rebellion kind of mm-hmm. Les Mis kind of, kind of thing, um, which again, it's all plot. It doesn't really yeah. go anywhere. It, it, it's, are there other songs? It, I don't even remember. It's, it's, it's really, really, and it's insubstantial. Like yeah. it, in terms of what it's trying to say, in terms of the, the actual story, mm-hmm. um, 
you go back to sort of the films that ostensibly this film is trying to like make mm-hmm. reference to. Um, and uh, those are all based on like European folklore, mostly yeah. a lot of, uh, a, lot, a lot of fairy tales from uh, you know, England and Denmark and that kind of, those yeah. kinds of places. And a lot and, of them are very simple. And they, yeah, they have simple tales. Uh, yeah. They try to like add a little bit more character to them. Yeah. Cinderella isn't about the fairies. The feature, the 1950 feature film is, um, you mean, uh, uh, Sleeping Beauty. Oh, Sleeping Beauty, you're right, excuse me. Yeah. Sleeping yeah. Beauty was 59, sorry yeah. about that. But Cinderella, 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 was Cinderella's a good example, though, because Cinderella isn't a particularly engaging protagonist. She mm. kind of exists to be sort of projected upon. But we make but, up for that by making the evil mom and the stepsisters very full personality. And, and all the little of, animals have personality. Yeah, all, all the little animals are given most of the screen time in that yeah. movie. Uh, this one, there's a lot of animals that are given a lot of screen time, but they're not... They don't have like little interpersonal conflicts. They don't have a yeah. lot of character. They're just sort of this mass of, yeah, of this, toys, a, a pile of Disney. Yeah, there, there was there's a scene at the end where a character approaches a bunch of rabbits, and it's implied that the rabbits are going to savage him. And yes. I would love to have seen like they and you know the rabbits jump at him, and then there's a hard cut, and they cut out to the other action. I would love to see a cut back, and, like a skeleton. and there's just a skeleton <laughs> on the ground, and the rabbits are like, ah, oh, yeah, it was good. <laughs> Something a little bit, like, grim, something kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, nothing like that. No, but there is this weird, insidious quality that if it was self-aware would be kind of impressive. Mm. But it feels like an accident, or it feels like one person in the movie got away with something and they're chuckling <laughs> themselves right now. And we talked, we alluded to it at the beginning. The premise of this movie, just on a, on a simple structural level, mm. and I'm not even, like, deep reading this, uh, is there is a ruler of a, quote, magic kingdom mm. uh, who acquires as like a form of property the things that people intellectualize an intellectual property if you will <laughs> and indeed many of the wishes that we mm. see uh are actually like snippets of other disney movies we see very specifically that yeah, one of them is mary poppins in it one of them is peter pan in it mm. these are specifically properties that disney acquired PL, they, so he has pl travers dream he yeah. has jam Berry's dream yeah and then we see him like squash those mm. Uh, and the plot of the movie is very specifically, they very explicitly say that once he goes down this path, there's no redemption. Mm. He is evil at that point. So once you start hoarding intellectual property, there's like, there's no hope for you. You're evil unforgivably. And the only solution is to put all of that uh, intellectual property that this magic kingdom has been hoarding and to put it back into the domain where the public lives. <laughs> into the public domain. It's yeah, literally yeah. about... Giving everything Disney has acquired to the public domain and how that's the only heroic thing Disney can do. And I I really wish that that was like the explicit point of this movie. It's not. It feels like, yeah, like they're in trying to, they tried to put in like references to Peter Pan and to Mary Poppins, but they did it in a way that makes the villain into Disney. Yeah. Like the Disney Corporation. It's, it's, it's again, this is not like, I, I, I can be guilty of like coming up with headcanon as much mm. as anybody. This is a surface reading of this. This yeah, is this, not this complicated. Is pretty, yeah, and uh, and yeah, at the end of the movie is using all of these stories to take over the world, take over the minds of all of these people. I have more and more power, haha, because I own all this yeah. stuff. And which is a co- you... coming from a company that has bought gigantic properties recently. Mm. They bought things like Marvel Comics and Star Wars. And a lot of the people uh, who came up with those Marvel yeah. Comics characters are making a pittance for it. Yeah, they're not making any money. Yeah, they're making... They're, the, uh, the guy who, like, created the whole Winter Soldier character and storyline... Like, he didn't create Bucky, but he created the Winter Soldier version and all that uh-huh. kind of stuff. 
Yeah, he's he's got a record saying he made more money from his like one line cameo in that movie as a scientist than he did for creating the entire premise upon which that movie is based. Yeah, the 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 creators of those comic book characters are credited at the very very end of the credit card as a like, thank you. Yeah, like special yeah. thanks to I don't know, like Jim Starlin, like whoever made it. Stan yeah. Lee gets in the front and like maybe the original artist mm-hmm. who created it, but if you wrote the specific story this is based on or no, it's, any it's, of the other major characers, you don't. It's it's Stanley and uh, Jack Kirby, I think. Gets, gets <laughs> yeah, some, and I know uh, Steve, some I think, credits, and Steve but... Ditko does sometimes oh, winds okay, up maybe, there as yeah. well, maybe John Buscema or something like that. But the majority, but the thing is, those aren't the only people who ever worked on those characters, mm-hmm. and most of the stories that they're adapting now aren't the original issue. Mm-hmm. They're at the original book where that character was created. They're cre- they're adapting characters like Venom, who were created decades later later and shit. Yeah. So these people are getting screwed over, but they <clears throat> they did sign a contract, and at first it seemed like it was for reasonable gain, a certain level of comfort. I will give you the bounteous wonders of my creation, and you give me a little comfort. And now you run a magic kingdom, and I live in near poverty yeah. just yeah, hoping so have, beyond hope that maybe my shit will one day get turned into another yeah, movie they, they needed to in in wish have the king live in like a really nice castle but his citizens are not happy yeah and i, I like that aspect of it i like the idea that this is sort of a subversive takedown of disney i feel the same way about this the same way i feel about tim burton's dumbo which, which tim burton which is also, cops too he said that yes, was intentional yeah, yeah because he he has worked for disney and he felt mm. kind of trapped working for disney yeah. uh and yeah so he made a movie where uh, uh michael keaton plays a, a walt disney analog who has his own theme park called dreamland i think it's uh, dream a dreamland dr- oh it's called dream a dreamland i think so i could uh, i thought it was just called dreamland uh, which it's irrelevant yeah. uh if it's dreamland then it's a great john waters reference but uh, <laughs> uh yeah, and at the end of the movie, Dumbo, this sort of innocent figure who's kind of outside mm. of the system, breaks free of Disney's chains yeah. and flies around Disneyland while Disney is in this gigantic structure that looks like the Death Star. Which also looks yeah. like the Epcot Center, so a we're little bit, two yeah. for the price so, of one. So, and he's firing lasers out of this thing, so it's definitely the Death Star, yeah. literally setting Disneyland on fire as you know Dumbo flies yeah. away out of, out of harm's way. Yeah. It's like... Dumbo destroyed Disneyland in that movie. Yeah. That's pretty cool. People hated that movie when it came out. And there are problems with that movie. Don't get me wrong. Mm. The characters are underwritten and shit. Mm. But that was pretty insidious. That one, <laughs> that, one, that one felt intentional. Mm. This one feels like a nugget slipped through. Yeah. Like some pitch. Like I pitched three things for our centennial. And they picked the joke one. Yeah. And now right. I have to make it work. Oh, well, you know? shoot. I, I was kind of ribbing on you there okay yeah. well shit no, so to... so it's not a good movie no it's but not. It, but it has a bit of a, a subversive streak an unintentional subversive streak which i appreciate yeah another thing i also appreciate is the king is the villain yeah and disney has long had a fetish for the european monarchy uh, these, mm. these royals and kings and princesses you know the princess brand mm-hmm. is a big part of, of what yeah. they do um and, and they've tried to diversify, but really it's the European monarchy that Most they kind of keep circling around. Yeah. And uh, if those in power are corrupted, mm-hmm. maybe this is a little bit of a way to uh, interrogate this mm-hmm. fetishization of these people in power who are essentially leeching off the people. I uh, mean, we, they started they, they started with the evil queen in Snow White, to be fair. But then they kind of lost their they way. They kind of lost their way. Yeah. And, 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 and the, the, the kings in Sleeping Beauty are dopes. I, and I, yeah, but... Yeah. 
but you know the, the the princesses and you know inheriting that you know yeah. being part of the royal family and you know the whole sort of right of, right of succession mm-hmm. birthright is a big part of uh, all these movies. Beauty and the Beast uh, is kind of about that as well. The mm-hmm. Beast is trying to taught a valuable mm-hmm. lesson for being a dick. Yeah, as a as a as a prince, but he doesn't renounce his crown or anything. Well, that's yeah. true. Yeah, <laughs> In fact, the the whole point is, oh, now we get to be happy royals again rather than dick royals. Mm-hmm. But we're still royals. There's still a bunch of impoverished people over there. What are you going to do for them? Uh, Look at anybody, any of these princesses. What happens when their parents is di- parents die? They become queens, right? Mm. Presumably. Uh, generally speaking, yes. I, I'm, I'm a little Unless you're Hamlet. I'm, I'm a little and it goes ba- to your uncle for some reason. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little baffled why uh, the princess is the brand. I, I want to be a princess. I don't want to be the queen. Well, Just the, be in charge. The, the princess uh, gets all of the grandeur, but none of the responsibility. I suppose so. Which is always amuses me when you do so, when all of a sudden they start like adapting like Princess Peach, and it's like you're doing all the queen stuff. You're, like, you're, you're running the why kingdom. Are you, why, why are you... Queen Peach, yeah. You should be Queen Peach now. Yeah. What are we even doing here? What's the... What is the point? Um, I read a book... <laughs> one of my favorite fantasy series of all time was a, a series called The Enchanted Forest Chronicles. Uh-huh. Uh, I was uh, dealing with dragons, searching for dragons. I've oh got spacing on the other two. Uh, but it was, uh, it was really, really good. And it was a story about a princess who hated the monarchy and hated everything that was expected of her. And she defied all of those conventions... And she got it in her head to escape that whole paradigm by volunteering to be kidnapped by a dragon. And what they really were were roommates. And so she was like, she was like doing cooking and cleaning and they were good friends. And there was like a whole bit with the dragons and they had like a different system of government, but they still called it kings and queens. So it's like, oh yes, we need to have a new king of the dragons. Oh, um, wouldn't you be the queen of the dragons? I was like, no, that's a different job. (laughs) <laughs> it's a different job but no one wants to be the queen it's mostly just scheduling no one cares the king is the good job and that's gender neutral now <laughs> sure anyway I love that series that but is, yeah, yeah if 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 in Wish the king is the corruptible one is the yeah. corrupted one yeah uh, wouldn't that happen with say Elsa when she became queen maybe just just the uh uh, proximity to power is a corrupting yeah. force. This idea that maybe the royals aren't so hot after all. That was a part of Frozen Two as well, where they kind of looked yeah, back the at the legacy of, of the royal family yeah, and found I mean, that oh wait a minute, mistakes you, like, were made. Yeah, yeah you, you like tried to genocide some people. Yeah. That's that's part of Frozen Two. That's a weird fucking movie. Yeah, and has a boy band number in the middle. That's the best part. The be- that <laughs> that is the best part of that movie. It's it's a boy band number with some movie on the other side of it. As far as I'm yeah. concerned, anyway. Um, but yeah, wish. Um, yeah, it's not good. I wish I hadn't seen it. I wish it was as good as Strange World. I was I was walking, which is not great, but it was interesting to yeah, look at. I, and had some fun, you know, new things that it tried. I walked out of Wish and just had to give it one star. <laughs> oh, 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 that's me being a oh, clever critic. That's actually um, pretty good. I haven't seen anyone use that one. It's just one star. I, I, I'm sure Peelman has given it one star, but I've never seen anyone call attention to it. So you should. Um, <clears throat> Uh-oh. You should copyright that. Um, <laughs> speaking of ascending to power, mm. uh, the surprise to me that it made more money than the Disney animated movie, uh, but Ridley Scott has a new uh, historical epic. Yes, he does. And it's called Napoleon, and it is about... A dessert. Uh, yes, a, a, okay. A d- delicious, creamy, flaky dessert. I was just going to say, like, some other random... It's about Cleopatra. Uh, <laughs> no, it's about Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, who uh, was uh, a monarch... 
in and uh, I was not a monarch. Excuse me. Well, <laughs> I think there's a certain semantics going on there. But yeah, he, uh, he was okay. the emperor. There, there was there was an anti anti monarchist movement going on. That he was very much behind. Touche. But there's he would not like you calling him a monarch. A, there's a certain hypocrisy in saying we don't like monarchies. I'm an emperor, but he's an emperor. And I'm going to give yeah. every. I'm going to give the country to my son when I die. I need an Surely, heir. That was a big yeah, part of are, the movie. Are we just kind of just changing the name? Mm. What are we doing? Anyway, it's irrelevant. Um, Joaquin Phoenix plays Napoleon Bonaparte, who started off as a really smart uh, military mastermind, who gradually, over the course of the film, through partly through ambition, partly through just being in the right place at the right time, and partly because a lot of people in power are idiots, winds up becoming the Emperor of France. And then gradually leads to his own downfall. Uh, but it's very Shakespearean in scope. That's um, why people like to study that part of French history. <laughs> Just, uh, Napoleon is a very interesting figure. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also uh, wrote many letters to his beloved Josephine, yes. who in this movie is played by uh, Vanessa, Vanessa Kirby. Kirby. Yeah. And uh, so we got to sort of see his his emotional side as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a something I don't hear talk about a lot anymore, but uh, the Napoleon complex... Oh, yeah. That is, uh, people who uh, seek ambition because they are uh, essentially just physically short. Yeah. Uh, Napoleon was famously not a tall man. Yeah, even though that's uh, actually inaccurate. Mm. Uh, in actuality, the French unit of measurement was slightly different than the British unit of measurement. Mm. So when they said Napoleon was this height, mm. everyone's like, oh, that's quite short. But actually, in the British mode, he was, I think it was like a respectable 5'7 or something. Like, mm. not particularly short. Yeah, but like people a, associated a that slightly and that's below stuck, average, but and yeah. that stuck with it ever since. It's mm. just like it's like George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. Yeah. Like people so, are just hanging uh, onto it. it. It's it's a really oversimplified way of looking at Napoleon Bonaparte and yeah. who he was and his ambitions and sort of his his place in history. But we do see a lot uh, of his insecurities drive mm. his ambition in this movie. I think. Uh, well, you could say you could see a lot of insecurities drive his ambition, or you could see it playing into a lot of really cliched high school level. Uh, history lessons about him he was like kind of a big baby yeah when if you read history it's like actually it's like a lot more complex a human being than that just as a person uh and ridley scott just leans into that and that alone uh he loved josephine yeah wrote a lot of letters uh he's seen as this kind of like lascivious horn dog who doesn't like a little bit gruff and not well spoken mostly just for josephine though like yeah. he doesn't I mean, he says in the film she's like you've had affairs he's like yeah but I didn't give a shit <laughs> like he's he's you know it has a somewhat romantic notion of him but mm-hmm. it's also it's not it's a very mm-hmm. it's a very conflicted movie in a lot of ways and I, I'm just going to say this right now mm-hmm. like many ambitious Ridley Scott movies especially the big epic-y ones the theatrical version of this movie feels really choppy and there's a part of mm. me that wants to disregard it altogether and just wait for the director's cut, which is <laughs> probably four out. and a half hours long, same with and like probably a, at least more coherent. Same with uh, Gladiator, same with Alexander, yeah, same Kingdom with Kingdom of Heaven. Of Heaven. Uh, Alexander yeah. was Oliver Stone. Oh, you're right, sorry. Okay. But same deal with S- Alexander. Similar, similar um, thing, but this happens to Ridley Scott constantly. Mm. It happened with Blade Runner, it happened with Legend. These are transformatively different movies in their director's cuts for the most part. Mm. Like, not everything he's ever done, but it's happened many times. And it's at the point now where it's just like, can he ever get it right the first time? Just let him get it. Is is it the prompt? Is it the studios demanding that it come in under time? That happens. Hmm. 
maybe, but at some point, just let this like, dude, just let him do the thing. Well, here's here's the thing. Um, you know, this keeps happening to. Uh, there's something in common with all of Ridley Scott's movies. Mm. Ridley Scott. Uh, <laughs> Maybe we're looking in the wrong direction here. Maybe this isn't him constantly butting heads with studios. Maybe he's just not good at this. And uh, I, I have always run very hot and cold with Ridley Scott. He's, uh, he's, he, he's like, you know, 30% of his movies are pretty good. He has like made three or four like really good ones. Uh-huh. Like a third are pretty good. And the rest is just tripe. Uh, he, mm. He's a very good at a certain kind of visual. He loves mm. his photography. He loves his, you know, camera Everything setups. Everything he does is handsome. I don't think yeah. he, even those bad movies yeah, are but, handsome. But I feel about Ridley Scott the same way I feel about a t- filmmaker like Tim Burton. Yeah. Uh, if you give him a bad script, he's going to make a bad movie. And that yeah. happens a lot. Uh, he, he doesn't really care about the script. Uh, that sure as hell doesn't seem to. That's why I liked uh, The Last Duel. I thought The Last Duel mm. was a very good script, so he actually mm. made a very good movie. Same with The Martian. The Martian's it's a, a great ex- movie. That's an excellent script. I think it's one of his better yeah. films in the long run. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and, I, and I think they're, I think they're definitely, and I bring the director's yeah. cuts back, I think they're definitely movies that clearly had a great script, but then they got hacked to pieces. You know, like... Uh, maybe? Uh, like, you know. like, King of Heaven in the director's cut? Solid. Okay. Like a solidly told movie. The theatrical cut, they like completely change characters' motivations so they don't make any sense. Like it's just bad. It's a bad movie that turned into a quite good movie. Mm. Very weird. So it's possible there's a totally transformed version of Napoleon out there. I will say this. What comes through in this movie is the old-fashioned Hollywood epic sweep. Which I don't think we've had in a while. It feels like I'm sure there's a lot of CGI in this movie, but it feels more practical. It's it feels hundreds of people, a lot of yeah. people on horseback, a lot of a lot, battle sequences, a lot of, lot of yeah. gorgeous locales and costumes. Uh, there's there's a really my favorite bit in the movie. It's just made me laugh. Uh, there's a the bit where's the coronation of Napoleon and mm. Josephine, uh, and uh, they were crowned the emperor and empress of, of France, and it was a big to do. And there's an incredibly famous painting of it. Mm. And they recreate the scene where, and it looks just like the painting. And I was like, <laughs> you know what a funny director would do is show the painter like painting it like in a Mel Brooks movie. Right. And then they do that. <laughs> There's actually a guy on set like, can I get this right? Hold it. Oh, it, I, Ridley Scott did that a lot, actually. There's yeah. a lot of famous paintings of Napoleon that he recreates. Yeah, I know. But like, uh, the fact a, that he put the painter in there painting it yeah, in the scene yeah. made me laugh. And I like, thought that was actually kind of whimsical. You know, there, there's a scene of a Napoleon, uh, famous painting from the... I think it's the 19th century. So it was like long after his death. Yeah. But um, of uh, Napoleon on horseback looking at the Sphinx when he went to Egypt. And yeah. they recreated that shot in the movie. Same with the scene of him looking at the mummy or in this, the same Egypt mm-hmm. sequence. That's also from a famous painting. Yeah. Um, Ridley Scott like at least knew his his, his, um, paintings. his paintings. It's, it's a very uh, it's, print the legend kind of movie, though. It's not accurate, yeah, really. It, it's just, here's the epic tale that has been passed down. Yeah. And given uh, what I know about Kubrick's Napoleon film that he wanted to do, which he meticulously researched, it, like mm-hmm. fi- file cabinets full of note cards about what he wanted to put in this gigantic movie about Napoleon and everything he wanted to explore about Napoleon. A lot of that ended up at, in his film, Barry Lyndon. Mm. But, uh, Looking at Ridley Scott's version, Ridley Scott's version feels like the Saturday morning cartoon oh, yeah. version. It's it's, it's a salacious. It's, it's salacious. It's really stripped down. Yeah. It's not terribly interesting. Mm-hmm. I like Joaquin Phoenix's performance. I like Vanessa Kirby's performance. Mm-hmm. Um, it 
it's about two hours and 40 minutes. It's, you know, has a pretty brisk pace. It doesn't mm. feel really bogged down like so many of Ridley Scott's films do. It loses steam in the second half, but mm. then again, so did Napoleon. Yeah, well, yeah. It, here's the thing. It kind of hits a wall at some points. Like that, yeah. that first part where it's kind of all building up. It's like, okay, this is kind of interesting. It's energetic. It's nice. And then it just sort of starts to... And you realize, yeah. oh, you're just... You're just telling it. Yeah. You're not saying anything about it. You have no point of view on Napoleon. No, and it Uh, really reads in some of the characterizations, mm. too. Like, I think Joaquin Phoenix actually does a pretty respectable job of keeping, like, a lot of different elements in play. Like, he comes Mm. across as really brilliant, but also really self-sabotaging. He Mm. comes across as really full of himself, but also kind of comical. And I think he does a good job of balancing that. But that's all all Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, yeah, he's really good. Mm. Vanessa Kirby, I think, is a very talented actor, but she doesn't have the material here. It really does feel like Josephine is, she's important because Napoleon thinks she's important, not because she's important. Uh And there's all these elements of the film, like he's like, he's upset that Josephine is having an affair. What does it mean to Josephine to have an affair? What does it mean to be married to Napoleon? It seems at first to be possibly a marriage of convenience, but then she's really into him as well. Like, she feels like there's a lot on the cutting room floor, or she was an underwritten character. Yeah. And that's frustrating because I think Vanessa Kirby deserved better. Yeah, and yeah. also, like Napoleon, uh, like hears that she's been having an affair, and he charges back. I want to confront you about this affair. Mm. It's like we're French. We invented infidelity. Uh, yeah. they, they don't. And I've been having affairs too. And it, it seems for a second that they're going to have this really kind of interesting conversation. Well. Let's just keep on having affairs. Yeah, but who cares? It's like we'll like, just have sort of this open relationship and just be open about it. So many problems mm. in both cinema and human history could have been spared if everyone was just like oh, polyamory yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> who do i choose both is an option yeah why not like it, it, and, and 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 especially when you're in that situation with like the royals and how so many people would openly have affairs and nobody gave a shit like madame mm. de pompadour uh-huh. like she was the king of france's lover mm. The queen loved her. <laughs> they were friends. It was, it's a whole thing. Um, but I, I can't second guess the history of it. They've got the letters to go on, and so like, there's a lot uh, of that. That's actually, I mean, who knows if there's more truth than that? Historians probably. Historians are not happy about this movie at all. Uh, <laughs> and there's a, some conversation about is it the responsibility of filmmakers to be accurate to history? And the mm. answer to that is no. Hmm. I do think filmmakers can make whatever they want. They can't. I do think there's a certain point where responsibility kicks in, where you could be irresponsible about history Mm -hmm. and uh, 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 put up, uh, set off, um, get across a bad narrative Mm -hmm. or or a a villainous narrative. Even Um, that's where propaganda tends to come in. But also, this is supposed to be a conversation, and honestly, I think more people are probably going to be interested in learning the reality of Napoleon after seeing a movie like this. Mm. So, like, your article about here's what Napoleon gets wrong is probably going to reach more people now. I suppose so. And I think there's... I, uh, I, the reaction to the movie is part of the movie experience, I think. Yeah. You know? That's what criticism is, isn't yeah. it? It's part of, part of this whole conversation yeah. about a film. I, I just wish Ridley Scott were... Uh, he's not the kind of filmmaker to have... He doesn't have a strong point of view yeah. in any of his films. He uh, he's he's not he's never going to be a propagandist. Um, the, this is why I like a film like uh, something like Prometheus because that feels like Ridley Scott is trying to say something. Uh, it might be a little muddled about, but he actually has something on his mind in those movies. Alien is a pretty effective anti-capitalist screed. A, a little bit. It's it's in the background yeah. there. Um, yeah. 
It's got uh, notes of things. It, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, it, more, and Blade Runner has elements too, but, you know. Uh, ish. I feel like there, there's some ideas that... There's like 30 half-baked ideas in, <laughs> in Blade Runner. It's just a ball of dough. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so... Napoleon is just another one of his disappointments, I think. Like, really handsome mm. production, really mm-hmm. great to look at. Entertaining through the yeah, first I, half. I, I think I liked um, it a little more than you did. Yeah, I at least enjoyed watching it. Yeah, the, yeah. The, you know, it's not, not a complete waste of time, but yeah, yeah, by the time we get to the second half, it's just, oh. And everything after that uh, Frozen Lake sequence. Oh, yeah. It's like, that's, it's, it's just, all just it's, falling action. It's all falling that, action. Yeah. It's like the denouement just won't end. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's... And it's like half the movie, you know? Oh, this is a great movie. Because sometimes people... The, the the term pacing problems comes mm-hmm. up a lot in criticism, and it, it, it's good as a starting point to a conversation. It doesn't actually explain anything. It just tells you there are issues with the way the film is paced. Yeah. It could be too fast at some points, uh, too slow, whatever. Napoleon is the kind of movie for which the term pacing issues was sort of coined, uh-huh. because every there, there are patches where it hums along and does real well, but consistently throughout, it feels like... Did we cut out a lot here? Because I feel like I'm not invested in this because we didn't take time earlier and now it all feels rushed. Yeah. That doesn't help anybody. It doesn't. <clears throat> Some, uh, sometimes the director's cut is longer but feels shorter. Mm. So uh, we'll, we'll see if there is one. Uh, coming up next, we got the uh, next film from Emerald Fennel, who had previously uh, wrote and directed Promising Young Woman. Uh, it is a film called Salt Burn. Which has less to do with salt than I thought it would. Well, Saltburn is the name of um, a, a wealthy character's estate. Yes. Uh, come back to Saltburn. And this is yeah. set in um, the mid 2000s, like 2006. Yeah. Um, and uh, it uh, stars a character named Oliver Quick. Mm, very Dickensian. Yeah, Dickensian kind of a character. And mm. he. Um, he is the awkward, shy nerd at his boarding, his British boarding school in 2006. Yeah. He uh, it's played is by Barry Keoghan. Barry Keoghan. Barry Keoghan, who is one of my favorite actors currently working now. Really Just, interesting performer. Uh, yeah. he, he, he specializes in being completely inscrutable. Uh, like, even when he's being really vulnerable, you're like, what else is he up to? I mean, mm. He was really, really good in um, The Banshees of Inishiran. Yes, he was. Um, well, I mean, he's good in everything, really. Um, he is. Even when he shows up in something like Eternals. Um, yeah. But uh, he uh, is completely dazzled by this uh, very... The world's handsomest man who also goes to his uh, his boarding school is played by uh, Elvis. Um, <laughs> Which one? He's played by Jacob Elordi, who just played yes. Elvis in the in Sofia Coppola's film Priscilla. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's tall, he's incredibly handsome, he's just dazzling everybody. He's also very rich. Yeah. And, uh, and so is his character in the movie. I have no idea. Um, they go to Oxford together, and Oxford has a very much um, <clears throat> people with money and also titles or famous names have a huge leg up, and uh, Oliver Quick does not. But he finds his way through circumstance into the... Oh, what am I... Uh, the orbit. The good graces. Yeah, yeah, the good graces and orbit of Jacob Elordi. Uh, and they kind of bond a little bit over the school year. <clears throat> and then over the summer, Jacob Elordi says, why don't you come stay with my family at Saltburn? And he goes to Saltburn. And Saltburn is big. 
Like, really mm. big. Yeah, there's a, a sequence where Jacob Elordi is walking him through house to house. It's like the, the, the Hermitage, like the Winter Palace. Gigantic house. And there's a lot of idle rich staying there. Mm. Um, we can meet Jacob Elordi's mom, who's played by Rosamund Pike. Mm-hmm. And she's uh, a, a little bit... Uh, I've I missed the days of the Gentleman Callers kind of... Um, mm-hmm. uh, almost Miss Havisham almost yeah. character. Back when uh, I was hanging out with punk rock bands in the 80s and they yeah. were writing songs about me. Mm-hmm. And her husband is... Uh, a bit of a goofball played by Richard E. Grant. Who 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 can play a part like this in his sleep. He's just yeah. amazing. And uh, it, when we finally get to Saltburn, however, we start to learn a little bit more about this Oliver Quick character. He's mm. not quite the shrinking violet that we thought he was. Mm. In fact, he has very insidious plans yes. that we are we don't really know what they are for a while. Is mm. is uh, he's more comfortable with his sexuality than we okay, expected. A little, little little bit open, and then yeah. this falls very hard into the very old cliche of the devious bisexual. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, which you know, fine. Yeah, it's 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 the cliche that's the problem. It's not like it's not that you can't have a, a villainous or devious character who is bisexual or queer or straight yeah. or anything. It's just when that becomes all they're allowed to do. Yeah, well, yeah, when problem, when, when their sexuality becomes like part of their deviousness. At the same time, <coughs> uh, excuse me. Yeah, be, be be a bisexual villain. Fine, that's great. You know, yeah. well, I, I remember when uh, Basic Instinct came out. How. There was a, a lot of controversy over that movie because uh, Catherine Trammell, the mm. Sharon Stone character, is a bisexual character, yeah. but she's like kind of a devious, murderous character. Mm. And part of it was part of the criticism was you're kind of weaponizing her sexuality. Mm. You're turning bisexuality into like a villainous trait. Well, this is also uh, something that would happen in like TV a lot too, mm. where um, there would be like in TV shows like you'd go to, like, an alternate reality and see the villainous version of the character, and all of a sudden, they're bi. Yeah. Like, Nana Visitor and Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah, You know? Uh, or, um, yeah, bisexuality is a, a, yeah. a, an element of villainy. Um, yeah. Which, you know, I'm bisexual, so, yeah, true, it is. <laughs> uh, that, 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 it's what gives me my villain powers. Um, but, uh... He, he So he's clearly charmed and very sexually attracted to Jacob Elordi because everyone is, mm-hmm. uh, because he's a very handsome man. But he's it's also, shot really beautifully. Everyone looks sexy as hell. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, the, the word I use to describe it is sweaty. This is a sweaty movie. <laughs> it is. And, it really uh, is. Yeah, and, and, of course, he starts manipulating people and like horrible things start happening to some of these rich... Uh, rich twonks living at this gigantic estate. And there are twists. Uh, some of them you may see coming. Some of them, mm-hmm. I guess you may not. It yeah. seems pretty straightforward to you, me. You but. may see them coming. You may not. But uh, Emerald Fennel is going to make sure you know about them because she actually like covers her ground a little bit too much. Mm. It's a two and a half hour film and she over explains things. It bit. really did not uh, need to be yeah. this gigantic. Yeah, this feels, this is a very and listen. There's a place for this. Don't get me wrong. Some of my favorite filmmakers and films are indulgent. Oh, absolutely. But it is also a very particular vibe, and it can outstay its welcome. And mm. I feel like as, there's a lot of things I like in Saltburn. Oh, I, I love the pace. I love the characters. Yeah. I love the photography. I love the villainy of it. I love how mm. kind of kind of how gross and sweaty it is. Yeah. Uh, no, how, I think how bold it is with sex and it, bodies. It's gorgeously oh. photographed. The soundtrack is really really great. All of these incredible pieces, I think Barry Keoghan in particular is really, really wonderful in it. All of these pieces add, add, add up to a little less than the sum of their parts, though, because mm. at, at its core, this is a tawdry bit of fluff. Mm. It's, it's, not it's a, lot it's a to soap it. opera, yeah. yeah like, it, it's got a theme, but it's also pretty obvious and kind of surfacy. and I think there are some people who are arguing that this is kind of like an eat the rich kind of movie, and it's mm. like, I, I think there's actually stuff in the movie that contradicts that. 
But well, regardless, yeah. and with, I'd have to get into spoilers so you can talk about that, but um, it's pretty fucking straightforward. Mm. Here's a, a, someone enters into a community, starts manipulating people in that community. You find out, are they doing this for good reason or bad reason? Are they a villain? Are they an anti-hero? Whatever. That will be explored later. But basically it's just, <clears throat> look at him go. Mm. Look, what's he going to do next? So it, and Barry Keegan is able to make yeah. that interesting. I just don't know if it can sustain yeah. two and a half fucking hours. No, and, and also, also I've seen the talented Mr. Ripley. It's <laughs> it's borrowing a lot from, yeah. from talented Mr. Ripley, including the queerness. Uh, and yeah. uh, I feel like talented Mr. Ripley gave us a character who was kind of cowardly. He's very uh, outwardly pathetic. So when he starts manipulating these re- these sort of rich people, you kind of see this pathetic uh, kind of nerdy uh, desperation out of the Mr. Ripley character. And that was really more um, of an invention of the Anthony Minghella film mm. than anything else. If you look at the original novel or some of the other adaptations of mm. it, he was not that vulnerable. Okay, he was much more of a he was much yeah. more of a predator. Yeah, well, um, and, and, well and that's this version now, where yeah. the Barry Keoghan character is more of a predator. In fact, it's a little odd that people are calling this an Eat the Rich movie because yeah. the rich characters turn out to be the most compassionate people at the end of the day. Uh, I mean, they're, they're still assholes, there's, there's, but there's but a different there's, kind of asshole, I suppose. So, and there's a certain kind of a thrill if this was a movie about like villain versus villain, like mm. they're both callow, horrible people I who's going to eat each other. I in kept this. expecting there to be more reversals in this. Yeah. And I think that would have kept it alive better, mm. but instead, it's pretty it's again i think it's pretty straightforward mm. um it's fun to watch though i yeah. just think i just think it's very good it blows Keoghan's itself out of all court. all of the energy oh yeah he's, he's great absolutely deserves all the accolades it just it, it it blows itself out of proportion yeah it feels like this is a tight 90 to 100 minute airplane novel thriller mm. type movie that has been because you know it's an oscar winning filmmaker it's coming out in award season it's being treated mm. like a gigantic important film mm-hmm. and it's not I feel like if this movie had been made in Italy for <laughs> under a million dollars in the 1970s and then been forgotten about mm-hmm. until Vinegar Syndrome cleaned it up yeah. and it found like an audience people going well this movie is a little puerile isn't uh, it I suppose so that, that, uh, that feels the, like the vibe you in, know? in the 1970s I don't think we would have had like the bathtub scene. Um, Maybe. I've they, seen uh, some pretty weird shit in the 70s, man. I don't know. <laughs> the, there's a scene in a bathtub uh, that I won't describe, but uh, it's 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 going to stay in your memory. It's and uh, this was put out by A24, and I love when they put out merch, the studio, because they put out a bathtub as like a, as their tie-in toy for Saltburn. Adorable. Yeah. I remember when Midsommar came out, uh, they put out a bear in a cage. Mm-hmm. I get it. And, and they, Let's see what you're doing. And they had a commercial for it, and it was like this like kind of upbeat Saturday morning. It's a bear. What's it doing over there? Kind of little kids playing with the bear in a cage. I get it. Mm. It's comedy. I like that. I think that's great. It's cute. Um, all right, let's move on. Uh, so let's see. We got. I saw one, two, three. I saw actually a lot more movies in here. So you take one. All right, I'm going to move on to Maestro. What Maestro. is Maestro? Because I don't know what this movie Maestro is the new film from Bradley Cooper. Oh, he directed it. It's okay. the biopic of Leonard Bernstein. Oh, that one. Okay. Yeah. <coughs> wow, that kind of slipped through the radar, didn't it? Yeah, uh, I, yeah I, Maestro's... I heard, I heard this was coming out, yeah. Uh, Bradley Cooper plays... Uh, yeah, acclaimed uh, composer and uh, uh, orchestra conductor, uh, Leonard Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, Famously sung about by R.E.M. That's true. In fact, that song is in the movie. 
Do they really play it? There's a scene in the movie because that movie, he was alive when that movie came out, and there's a the, scene in the, the movie where he's out, driving yeah. the, in a car and that song's playing. We don't get to see him react to it, and that I think was a shame. But Aww. we do hear him listening to it, and that's mm-hmm. kind of funny. But um, yeah, this is a, a life story of Leonard Bernstein. Uh, Bradley Cooper co-wrote, directed it, and if you'll recall from his version of A Star Is Born, he's a very good director. Like, he's really interesting and ambitious, and he cares... Like, a lot of actors, when they move into directing, really focus on the performances, because, you know... They're actors, yeah. Yeah, that that makes sense that that might be their lens, but... In this movie in particular, he gets a lot more ambitious with his uh, sort of playful cinema styles. Uh, The first chunk of the movie is in black and white. And he has a lot of really bravura camera shots there. There's a bit where they're doing, um, what's that musical Leonard Bernstein? On the Town. Okay. Um, where they're performing that and it gets kind of virtuosic and it's all very, very cool. Um, and then as the movie progresses and he and his uh, wife, uh, played by uh, Carrie Mulligan, who was also in Saltburn, uh, although she's uh, more of a co-lead in this one. Uh-huh. Um, as they get older, uh, the movie kind of moves into more of like a 60s cinema sort of vibe, different color palette, more restrained in its sort of uh, camera angles. Um, it's a biopic about how Leonard Bernstein was a guy. Like like just sort of ordinary man sort no, of a no, thing? No, or? no, it's not ordinary. I'll give you that. Like it's right. just, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a biopic about like this, this big part of his life. Um, Leonard Bernstein, um, queer. Uh, we see him at the beginning of the movie. He's in bed with a man. Uh, he meets a young woman, mm. uh, uh, Felicia Montelagre, uh, who is, <laughs> she an by the way, right? she was an actress. She was also Costa Rican and Chilean and she's played by Carrie Mulligan, which is a choice. Um, all right. She's good at it. But casting her at all is a choice. Uh, and same, same thing with uh, Bradley Cooper really going all in on the prosthetic nose. That's right. a choice. Um, he's also really, really good in it, though. So mm. both things are kind of true at the same time, which is kind of frustrating. Um, but most of the movie, it's, we kind of see him sort of flit about from his big projects. We mention a few, but don't really see them, like West Side Story. But mostly it is about him coming to terms with his queerness. Okay. Which I think is actually a, a, an interesting lens. Um, again, we meet him. He's, he's in love with a man. He meets a woman. He marries her. They have kids, and things are going pretty, pretty well. And then around the late 50s, early 60s, he just feels really empty and unfulfilled. Mm. And then we cut to... Because he's, well, he's, he's in love with a man, he's and he well, to live with a woman. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and not just that man, by the way. He's just unfulfilled because that's part of his life he's been mm. sort of holding back. We cut to a few years later. He's having affairs. She knows about it, but mm-hmm. it's the mid nineteen nineteen. It's the mid twentieth century. Mm-hmm. She wants him to be discreet yeah. because there's a lot of stigma and in some cases laws. Uh, and their their daughters don't know, and they hear rumors, and they're deeply ashamed because they've been grown up in a very homophobic society. Um, and later on in his life, he becomes more open about. Fuck it! I'm just really gay (laughs) and I don't care anymore and I'm just gonna be who I am and meanwhile she's hitched she's hitched 
her wagon to this and she's stuck. And she doesn't feel like she can get divorced. She doesn't feel like she can take a lover either. So she's, again, polyamory can fix all of this. But, but basically, it's just she she feels like she's trapped in a marriage where it was never properly designed for her to be, um, for her to be cared for in a meaningful way. So she's kind of miserable. But they also share a whole life together, and they really care about each other really deeply. The relationship is very complicated, and their life goes where it goes. All right. Um, uh, answer me this. Yeah. Um, because I, I'm looking at this, because I haven't seen this movie, so I can't comment mm-hmm. on what's in it. But yeah. from the outside, it looks very mercenary. Hmm. This looks like uh, an Academy Award winning actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of, kind of an Academy of Darling, really. Mm-hmm. Oh, this, he's been uh, nominated many times. Yeah. yeah. Uh, doing... The Hollywood thing, mm. where I'm going to do a a, bi- a biographical picture, yeah. which tends to get the Academy's attention. They like them. Um, and the Academy loves to give statues to straight men mm. who play gay men who die. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be a calculation. Uh, yep. And it feels to me like Bradley Cooper doesn't necessarily have a particular affinity to Leonard Bernstein's music, I mean, uh, I, I mean, I guess I everybody does because it's part of the speak culture. But the but, movie, um, the movie's Walt Wall Leonard Bernstein music. I'll give it that. Mm. The music is by Leonard Bernstein. So yeah, you get yeah, you get that. Movie, yeah. um, fine, fine. I'm sure the, yeah. the score is great because I got Leonard Bernstein composing it. He also composed the scores to a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a lot of musicals. He did a lot of uh, classical mm. uh, pieces. Um, but you know, I I've seen interviews with Bradley Cooper. Mm-hmm. He doesn't ever say, oh, have you heard about Leonard Bernstein? I really love him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a, a, I've always been really passionate about Leonard Bernstein's music. I've really been interested in the contributions to his culture. Maybe he hates Leonard Bernstein and he wants to do a biography on that basis. He doesn't, uh, this doesn't seem like the kind of thing that an artist does out of passion. Or at least mm-hmm. something that... Bradley Cooper is doing out of passion. I, listen, I can't speak to that. Uh, well, you can if well, that reads in the movie. Well, it, it does and it doesn't. Oh. Um, that's the thing. There's definitely a very... Um, it doesn't feel like a dispassionate film. Okay. It feels like a film that he's very, very invested in, especially as a director, but honestly, it's a very, it's a very, very particular performance. Right. And I think he's very respectable in it. Um, Regarding what you're talking about, though, I feel as though the term Oscar bait, mm. it's an ugly word. It it's, tends to be derogatory. It's basically saying, you didn't mean to make this movie. You yeah. meant to win an award. Yeah. You, it, it, it is a mercenary act. And I don't think that's really fair, but I also do think it's fair to say that the Oscars are a particular audience. Mm-hmm. And any genre is made for a particular audience. When we make a slasher movie, we are putting things in the movie that we think the slasher audience will enjoy because they have before. One could argue that what we call Oscar bait is just a particular brand of melodrama. Mm. Often they're biopics, but if they're not, they're often message pictures or some other kind of serious, yeah. uh, thematically significant uh, type of film. They feature uh, roles that have, you know, a lot of uh, conflict and a lot of big speech moments. They tend to have sweeping scores. 
um, they tend to like end with chirons that just say, then this happened, or this is who they are today, or after this person died, this happened, and all of their work paid off. There's a particular vibe that certain films have, and I think it's hard to say that Maestro has it, but that being said, I also do feel that this was made by people who, who at least really thought Leonard Bernstein was neat. Okay. Um, when you see Bradley Cooper, like, in, like, a fantasy sequence, like, dance the bits and on the town, he looks like he's having fun. When he, when you see him, and apparently he trained for years to conduct one piece of music like Leonard Bernstein did, which at some point he just got to say, if you tried acting... <laughs> but he, he it's it's in the movie it's a very much like let's just do it let's just show Leonard at his best when he does this with his hands and this with his hands and the people in the orchestra go oh so we should do this now and we did it and everyone in the audience was like wow they would not have played that that way if that guy wasn't there so thank god for him <laughs> I don't fully appreciate some just, of the minutia involved in in, in conductory, but also just quoted American Hustle, Did I really? Bradley. Yeah. Did I? Would I, I think There's a bit like if, if I hadn't screwed up, you wouldn't have fixed it, and you wouldn't have discovered this other problem. So thank God for me. That's <laughs> sort of Gen- actually, one of Jennifer Lawrence's I, lines. I was actually. I, I just realized maybe maybe Jim Stephanie Sterling is um, is quoting that too. Uh, uh, video game pun that I like. Stephanie Sterling uh, says that at the end of. All of her videos. Oh, thank like, God! Uh, for me. Thank she, God for me. She could be, yeah, she could very yeah. well be quoting. She might be. Uh, American I, actually, Hustle. I actually don't know. I never thought about it before. I, had, I, 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 American Hustle didn't make much of an impact on me. I actually don't think it's a particularly good film, but which I don't get. I love American it's, Hustle. It's fine. Mm. I just don't understand why it was a big deal. It feels pretty insubstantial to me. It's a, a lot of big, interesting characters being played by they're fine. characters like actors swinging for the walls. They're, they're they're fine. That's, that's that's where I'm at with me. I, I find that movie just so. David Russell made an entire career out of I'm going to do a generic genre movie with bigger actors, mm. and you're all going to think that's brilliant. Like Silver Linings Playbook is a very generic rom com story. Yeah. But because it's got some bigger speeches and the casting is like really good. It feels like it literally ends with a dance competition. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's the one funny like person of color friend who teaches them how to dance in a scene and then is gone. And everyone's like, "Wow, what a what an incredible like it's 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 okay at best. Let's just move on." Anyway, um, anyway, my show. Here's what I'm gonna say. Um, I don't think it's like truly incredible, but I do believe that there's some really good performances in it. I think there's some really interesting directing choices in it. I like it, but for all of the energy that went into it, all the effort that went into it, um, I saw it less than a week ago, and I'm remembering it less and less. Oh, wow. So I do think when you're watching it, you're going to say, oh, this is very, very good, but I don't know if it's going to stick with you because it's not really sticking with me very much. Mm -hmm. So take that for what it's worth. Um. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. 
And I'm going to segue actually into uh, uh, I'm going to, I have less to say about this one. Uh, a documentary about a conductor. Oh, which right. uh, and and also a very popular Emmy, uh, Emmy sorry Grammy winning uh, musician. It's called American Symphony, mm-hmm. uh, and it is a documentary about Jean Baptiste, who was also uh, the band leader for Stephen Colbert's uh, The Late Show. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, he won a bunch of Grammy awards, and he uh, composed and performed. Um, and like a new sort of modern symphony. Uh, the movie is about basically one year in the life of Jean Baptiste and his uh, wife Suleika Jouad. His career is skyrocketing. He's winning awards. He's winning accolades. He's being recognized on the street. He's doing this incredibly ambitious project. Uh, his wife. When she was younger, like really young, <clears throat> had cancer, beat it, but now it's back. Ooh. They just got married. She's going through these cancer treatments while he's like touring. It's an incredibly up and down time in their lives. Like it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, and it feels like that confluence is what makes the movie as interesting as it is. Because if it was just about one of those things, it would be interesting because they're, they're nice people. But the idea that so many wonderful things can happen in your life, all the horrible things are happening simultaneously, is something that even though their lives are very, very much unlike most of ours. Mm. I, I didn't go to Juilliard and become a famous musician. She wrote a best-selling book and is also a beautiful painter and... All that kind of stuff. Not everybody can relate to that stuff. But I think we can all relate to our lives feeling like weird fucking contradictory chaos. Hmm. I think at its best, this movie captures that sort of dichotomy. And that's something that I think not every movie is even is really, really good at. You know, it feels like in, in even movies about the best of times and worst of times, they tend to just sort of, uh, take turns. Hmm. But here it's it's very much about them both happening at the same time. Uh, I was not super familiar with Jean Baptiste's music outside of little snippets that I had heard here and there. He's incredibly talented. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're unfamiliar with him, this is probably a very good introduction. Uh, if you are familiar with him, you're going to get to know him better, and he seems like a very sweet guy. I don't know if that's the complete story because that's the true for any documentary. You pick and choose what to put in the movie, but. As presented in the film, uh, they're both wonderful people who are going through a lot, and it seems like they deserve their successes, and it seems like they don't deserve their tragedies. And that's kind of beautiful. It's a good documentary. It's not a life-changing documentary. It didn't blow me away. Mm -hmm. But I met some people I didn't know before, and I grew to care about them and admire their work. Well, I mean, keep in mind... One of the functions of film is to inform. Yeah. And a documentary in particular. Hmm. Uh, you're documenting something. So, yeah, this is something that... Um, it, it's a it's a very good documentary. It's lovely. It's in select theaters. It's, I think it's going to be on Netflix soon. Um, it is worth checking out. Again, not a mind-blower, but it's a well-crafted documentary. And if you like, in particular, Jean-Baptiste and uh, Silica Jawad, but um, 
just music in general. Uh, or stories about like the heaviness of life, but like some documentaries are like just wallowing in dourness. <laughs> and I understand they're about really, really heavy topics, and sometimes that's warranted, but I can only handle so much sometimes. Mm. Even though there's it, like, you know, it's a story about cancer. Um, it's not a hugely depressing film. Okay. So if you're thinking, you're saying to yourself, oh, I don't want to see something that's like really super depressing, it's not. But it is a little heavy sometimes. Well, for, and I think it does a good job of balancing that. Also, first of all, why don't you want to see something really depressing? Uh, those, are exhilar- those are exhilarating films. I'm not saying depressing movies are bad. What I'm saying is they don't tend to fit my particular taste. Okay. And all I can do is explain my own taste. All right. There are some depressing movies that I deeply enjoy. I generally don't seek them out and crave them. All right. So, And I know some people agree with me and some people don't. So you've been... If that sounds to you like, oh, I only like the depressing movies, well, then I guess avoid this like the play. But <laughs> if, on the other hand, you're, you're saying to yourself, well, that sounds kind of sweet, yeah, check this one out. It's quite good. All right, t- tell, me about, um, tell me about May, December while we're on Netflix movies. All right. um, yeah, May, December is the latest film from Todd Haynes. Uh, it is inspired-ish, um, mm. like not directly, by the story of Mary Kay Letourneau, Hmm. If you remember Mary Kay Letourneau, um, she died of cancer in 2020, but she was involved with a, a rather major scandal when she had an affair with a student, oh, uh, a yeah. rather young student. Um, yeah, she uh, she she was caught uh, having an affair with a 12-year-old. She was targeting a 12-year-old, and she uh, she went to prison for it. Good! And then she got out of prison, and they got married, and they had children. Okay. So, uh, this is a pretty fraught uh, relationship we're going through. Okay. Uh, The Mary Kay Letourneau character in Mm May-December is played by Julianne Moore. Okay. And we're catching up with her uh, as as her two children that she had with her 12-year-old... A lover back in the day well, are now they grew up. So they, they grew up, yeah, but yeah. but her kids yeah. are now uh, leaving for college. Okay, and we actually get to see uh, her husband, mm-hmm. who is now uh, played by Charles Melton, who's okay. is is he's now like thirty five. Mm-hmm. He is as old now as uh, the Julianne Moore character was when they first started sleeping together. Okay, and. A lot of this movie is kind of exploring the nature of that relationship, how she has always been in a kind of survival mode, she, mm. which is, in her case, uh, just sort of blocking out a lot of the world. In fact, uh, right at the beginning of the movie, um, uh, she's delivered a package. It's like, oh, we got a package. Oh, that's just more dog poop. People mail it to us all the time. Like, so she's still a villain mm. in the community. Yeah, She's trying to make things uh, work uh, he uh, is interested in like butterflies and chrysalises. Yes, the butterfly metaphor is pretty heavy, uh, pretty uh, pretty obvious. Uh, and she is just trying to make ends meet as a baker. Into their life comes a famous actress, and she's played by uh, uh, Natalie Portman. Yeah, Natalie Portman is going to play the Julianne Moore character in an upcoming feature film. Mm-hmm. Now, now these and, are this isn't uh, this is inspired by but she's not actually playing. She's not actually playing Mary Kay Turner. Okay, so the Natalie Portman uh, character isn't based on a specific actor then? No, um, okay. she, so yeah, 
this this is that's a fictional concert. Okay, that's makes character. Mm-hmm. But she's very famous, so everywhere she goes, people are kind of dazzled. You know, I, I liked you in this one movie. Mm-hmm. She agrees to talk uh, at the local high school, and there's a lot of scenes of her having conversations, trying to get into <clears throat> this woman's mindset. Yeah. What were you thinking? And that's the main question. What were you thinking yeah. to target a child and have an affair with them? Yeah. And uh, her her only excuse is ever we were in love. He was different. Uh-huh. Uh, nobody understands us. Mm-hmm. And you know she, she's trying to stage it in this language that it was really this romantic thing. But we don't buy it for a second. Mm-hmm. We actually see her as kind of this wimpy, withdrawn character who has been kind of destroyed not just by the consequences of her actions but her actions as well and kind of the weaknesses of her character uh meanwhile the natalie portman character is really trying to get into this but as the movie goes on we also see a lot of flaws in her character things that she's Mm. willing to sort of overlook or not really process she's talking to a lot of the people in this woman's life we get to meet her son and to get to see uh her from her first marriage Ah. who is now an adult and is was very emotionally stunted by the scandal yeah she talks to her lawyer from from earlier on we get a lot of perspectives on who she is and uh there's a, uh, this really wonderful, almost like persona-like scene where the two uh, women are putting on makeup and Natalie Portman's really trying to match her body language. There's a lot uh, of really do interesting... Do what she does. Sh- yeah, yeah like, and, and they're putting on each other's makeup and yeah, they kind of like blend in that one moment. Okay. Um, you're waiting for... This is Todd Haynes' movie. Yeah. And you're waiting for something really salacious to happen. You're waiting for them to <sighs> swap identities or the Natalie Portman character starts, like, targeting a 12-year-old herself and this weird sort of like twisted like Todd Salon's kind I of vibe. So. Todd Haynes. Todd Haynes, again, I haven't he, seen this He can one do yet, big melodramas. He can, but he, what he seems to be really fascinated by, and there are exceptions to this, but... He seems to be really, really fascinated by uncomfortable relationships, uncomfortable mm. for the people in them and people watching. Yeah, um, you know, he he uh, he could do something that's like you know fraught, but ultimately very romantic, like Carol. Yeah, uh, but then he's also attracted to something like Mildred Pierce, which is about the most toxic mother and daughter relationship <laughs> maybe in movie history. I didn't see his Mildred Pierce. I didn't see so. it either, but I appreciate that why he was attracted uh, attracted to the material. Um, so this sounds like the kind of thing he could do, but I don't know if he's necessarily the kind of airplane novel well, kind of filmmaker. No, but uh, you, you're watching this movie and it feels like something big is about to happen. Yeah. Somebody's going to start murdering somebody else. Like It's poised to be a really uh, salacious melodrama. But just in these moments when you think that's going to happen, Todd Salons, or Todd Salons, Todd Haynes, <laughs> right? Todd Haynes, uh, pulls back and just lets the characters start to ponder mm. who they are and what they've done. And ultimately it becomes this really kind of dark character piece about who these people are and how they've never reckoned with the damage any of them are capable of doing. Right. Including the actress character in, in Do Away. Hey, Luca. Uh, so it <laughs> yeah. actually, because of that, because it doesn't go for the salacious route, it becomes something of far more adult, mm. far more mature, uh, something that's actually worth really pondering and looking at. Yeah. The, the, this woman's crime and the fact that she's still married to her victim. Yeah. Like, all these years later right. and how he feels about that. Remember and when how he's never turned it into a wacky comedy? And, 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 and that was one of the worst movies of that year. Yeah, because that... Decade, buddy. <laughs> decade. That's my boy, the Adam Sandler film. Uh, 
turned the Mary Kay Letourneau drama into com- fodder for a comedy. Yeah. The idea was that it was told from the perspective of a 12 year old and he had an affair with his teacher, but that was seen as something really kind of fun for the 12 year old. Like, Oh, this is really great. I'm glad I got to sleep with my teacher. She yeah. goes to prison for it. And he visits her in prison. They have a child together. He grows up into this, completely horrible person that the film wants you to sympathize with and think is really kind of charming and funny. And he's been estranged from his son. He meets his son again. His son is played by Andy Samberg and Andy Samberg hates him for everything he did. He was also a very abusive father. He tattooed his child. Yeah. Uh, and that was seen as a joke. The movie and the whole, is the joke like... is about how the Andy Samberg character <clears throat> has to come around to the Adam Sandler character. Yeah, Adam Sandler. Mm. This is a good segue, by the way. Uh-huh. Adam Sandler is a comedian whose success is really interesting to me. <clears throat> I feel like at the heart of Adam Sandler's live-action movies, the good ones and the bad ones, uh-huh. especially the comedies anyway, he's in the occasional outlier art house movie which doesn't fit this mold, but the majority of his work. They're about sympathizing with people who should be hard to sympathize with Mm. because they have anger issues, perhaps, or uh, they're extremely socially off-putting in some way or shrill. Mm. Um, In one of them, he literally plays the Antichrist. He's supposed to to sympathize (laughs) with the Antichrist. Um, when they work, I think they work because there's an innate likability to Adam Sandler. They work? Sometimes they work. <laughs> I would argue, I would argue, Happy mm. Gilmore is a, is a very good comedy. It, it's been a while since I've seen it. I Happy do, Gilmore I works. do remember... It's an uncomplicated, mm. kind of broad 90s comedy, don't get me wrong, but I think it knows what it is, and I think it does what it does well. Mm. And I think it sells Adam Sandler as a guy who is very much out of place and very much has serious issues, but has an innate lovability to him. There's something about him that we can appreciate. He is doing all of these strange, angry, inappropriate things, but he's doing them for a good reason. He's trying to take care of, I think it's his mother or grandmother. Um, a lot of Adam Sandler movies take Adam Sandler's likability for granted. They figure, well, you like Adam Sandler, you'll watch him do anything. And that becomes an excuse for, basically, abuse. Uh-huh. Like, that's my boy. Like, well, you like Adam Sandler, so let's see him do something that's, like, we'll, we'll, as far as we can go. And he'll still like him. No. <laughs> you push that too far. But when Adam Sandler does animation, mm-hmm. it works better. Because animation, at least the American animation that he does, not so much... Um, uh, Eight Crazy Nights, but you know stuff like Hotel Transylvania. You're talking specifically about Hotel. Transylvania. Mostly about. Well, I'm talking about the, the movie Leo as well, which I'm about to, which I'm about okay. to review. They don't want to be off-putting. Mm-hmm. These are movies that are trying to be pleasing, and so Adam Sandler is allowed to just be likable. Uh huh. And when that happens, guess what? He's quite likable. <laughs> Those Hotel Transylvania movies, especially the first two, third one's okay. Uh, they're really sweet, funny movies. Mm. They're wonderfully animated. They're they're good films, especially that first one. But like the first two are quite good. His new film, it's a Netflix animated film called Leo, uh, is not as 
interestingly animated as Hotel Transylvania, but it, it is sweet. Uh, he plays the class pet uh, in a fifth grade classroom. Okay. Uh, he's he's a lizard. There's a specific species whose so name been, escapes me. Is it an iguana? Maybe? No, 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 no. It's it's actually a very particular species. Um, it's like a tuatara or something like that. Hmm. It's actually only native to New Zealand. Okay. But the movie takes place in Florida, and when we go to the Florida Everglades, we see more lizards like him. So nobody did their research. The the you important got a key reactor to play him. The the uh, they didn't. They got Adam Sandler. Hmm. Um. The only thing that's... The reason why he's that specific species, though, there's a reason, is because that species of lizard is incredibly long-lived. Okay. Um, at the beginning of the a lot, movie... A lot of reptiles are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, he's... It, the, all the kids are coming in for the first day of school. And he's in, in his, like, tank with a turtle played by Bill Burr. Bill Burr. Sorry, mm-hmm. excuse me. Um, and they've been doing this for a while. So they see all the kids... Ah! New Year... Same kids. Uh, there's the one who talks a lot because they're really insecure. There's the one who's really clingy because their parents are getting divorced. That's the class clown who's hiding his own insecurities. That's uh, the, the kid who's uh, very, you know, got a big ego because their parents do, but one day they'll learn five lessons. Like, they've, they've seen all this before. They know all yeah. these kids. And Leo, the main character, overhears someone talk about him in the tank. And how that species of lizard lives for 75 years. Hmm. Now, they're in the fifth grade. They don't teach addition in the fifth grade. They teach fractions. So he's really good at fractions, but he doesn't know addition. So um, they have to wait until there's a fire drill, and he can like hang out with all the other class pets. And he speaks to the class pet from the second grade. And he's like, hey, can you do some addition for me? I'm trying to figure out how old I am. And that's when he finds out he's 74. Oh, so he's about to die. He, he realizes that he's at death's door. And he's never lived. He's been in a tank in a kid's classroom this entire time. So, so it's the, the, the bucket list animal version. That's how it starts. All right, but that's not where it goes. So when the uh, the class has a new teacher and they institute the every weekend the kids have to take home the class pet. It'll teach them responsibility. Yada yada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when he gets taken home for the weekend, he's like, "Okay, this is my chance. I'm going to escape." He tries. He's caught in the act, and when the kid's like, "What are you? Wh- what's the lizard doing?" He says, "Okay, I can talk, Uh-oh. but only you can hear me. Yes, I'm only talking to you because I'm your magical friend, and I'm here to solve all your problems." <laughs> Don't tell anyone about this. <laughs> and so the kid's actually like, okay, well, they, and he talks. It's kind of cute. All it's right. a funny premise. And so uh, over the course of the film, every time a kid takes him home for the weekend, he does the same spiel. <laughs> so they all think they're the only one who can hear him. Yeah. And they're all become his best friend. And because he's been looking at like kids' experiences, he's basically like the teacher who's been at school, like good by mm. Mr. Chips. He's been doing this for so long. He's seen it all. Yeah. He starts giving the kids advice. I love it. And the kids, mostly it's good advice. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a little, I don't know, but like it's not very harmful. There's one bit where I thought the movie was going to fly completely off the rails. I in, thought... In a good way or a bad way? In a bad way, uh, and then it righted itself. But there's a bit in the middle where he's talking to a kid who's very very sensitive. And the kid is crying. And um, 
he sings a song about why it's wrong to cry, so shut up. And I'm like, oh, don't do this. Don't ruin this. This is such bad advice. And then the kid, after hearing the song, says, I see what you're doing. Hmm. You're using reverse psychology. <laughs> and you actually know that I know that it's okay to cry, and hmm. I can convince myself that's true. And I go, thank you. That's the kind of thing my grandfather would do. Yeah. And Leo's like, okay, good. I'm glad that worked. And I'm like, oh, thank God you fixed that. I was, <laughs> I was really worried for a minute there because that could have gone real bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sweet. And All I right. appreciate that it's a kid's movie that's a message for kids and adults that's actually quite helpful, which is if you're, if you're a kid, if there's an adult that you can talk to that you feel comfortable and safe talking to about your problems. Make sure you talk about your problems because... Mm-hmm. You're, other people have gone through them. You can find help and advice and, and love and all appreciation. And also, hey, adults, listen to your kids. <laughs> Don't be all in your own fucking world. Actually listen to them. There's there's There aren't a lot of really funny jokes in it, but there's one really good bit. Jason Alexander plays the dad of the spoiled kid. Mm. And he has convinced the school... To give his his daughter more time on all of her quizzes. He's just finagled that. And so he starts singing a whole song about how it's good to buy things for your kids. And I bought her more time. And just as he starts like dancing with a whole bunch of like anthropomorphic stopwatches. Uh-huh. She gets like really bored and goes into her room. And the movie continues away from that musical number. <laughs> and when we cut back to the living room when she leaves her room. Uh-huh. All the stopwatches are like leaving for the day, and he like refuses to tip them, and they're pissed. Oh, that's cute. And I'm Normal. like, that's funny, right? Cute little meta joke. I, I wish yeah. the movie was that weird all the time. It's not. Uh-huh. Every once in a while, it is though, and that's when it kind of like becomes really, really funny. But most of the time, it's not really, really funny. It's just kind of light, mm-hmm. and it's a pretty effective emotional film. So it, it kind of works. Okay, it, it's. I don't think it's going to be any kid's favorite movie, but it's a it's a pretty good movie. All right, good, good for them. Basically, we were talking about how Wish is an animated film that's just sort yeah. of like off the rack, yeah. plays by other rules. I appreciate Netflix has been doing this recently with a lot of their animated fare, where mm-hmm. they're they're taking a like they're making kind of odd movies, mm-hmm. like Mitchell's versus the Machines mm-hmm. or Nimona. Um, wasn't a big fan of Nimona, I but love uh, it. Klaus. Klaus was a good one. I was thinking of the Willoughbys, which feels like... Oh, yeah, uh, I forgot about that, that for a second. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that one's kind really of, off the rails. I love that movie. Bizarre, modern yeah. Adams Family that somehow turns into Willy Wonka. I don't know how that happened, actually. But, yeah, it's like really kind of a dark yeah. movie. Yeah. And, and uh, oh, uh, Wendell and Wilde was another one where they're kind oh, of... Oh, yeah, that's a good movie, yeah. Really, really trying to tell new kinds of stories mm-hmm. with their animated fare. And it sounds like that's what's going on with Leo. Yeah, a little they're, bit. They're not trying it's to more, just do a cute, like, musical animal it's, film. It's way more subdued than most of those movies you just described. A oh. lot of those movies are a lot more, um, I don't want to say, like, frenetic or anything, because that sounds like they're chaotic, but, like, they've just got a lot more energy to them. Yeah. This is a story about an old guy uh-huh. who's, like, starts mentoring kids in a school. <laughs> and it's got that kind of like old guy energy. Yeah. yeah it basically works. It's mm. not amazing, but it basically works. Good for them. All right. Uh, let's see. I have one more and you have one more. Why don't you tell me about uh, Do Not Disturb? Okay. Um, Do Not Disturb uh, is one of the more disturbing movies I've seen. Well, then they and fucked I, up because of that title. And I love it. And uh, they did disturb. 
It's <laughs> they messed up. They did. They disturbed me. Do not disturb. No, they disturbed. Damn it. Um. So uh, these two. It's about a married couple. Mm. They're uh, they're named Chloe and Jack. They're played by Kimberly, Kimberly uh, LaFerriere and Logan Christopher. Or excuse me, Rogan Christopher. Okay. And they've just gotten married. Mm. And they're on their honeymoon in Florida. Mm. And they hate each other. Uh, there is no love, warmth, or romance. They're kind of like overgrown college kids who are just like... It's like they got married out of obligation. Like they were yeah. together for a long time. Either they break up or they get married and they just decided to get married mm-hmm. when really they should have chosen to break up. Right. Uh, they've checked into a hotel... And it's not really made clear right at the start, but a little later on, uh, the the bride character understands that he's checked them into a swingers motel, oh. like a swingers resort. Yeah, yeah. There's no locks on the doors, or, or you put a. Are, mm. There are locks on. There should be locks on the doors. It's sort of like open door policy. Like if your door uh. is unlocked, other people can come in, and you have a good time. Okay. Um, he didn't run this by her. Well, that's fucked up. Yeah. And he just wants to sort of get wasted on whatever, you know, drink and drugs he can get his hands on and just have as much sex as possible, but in a hateful kind of a way. And, and they start to get into the swing of it a little bit Mm -hmm. because they kind of hate each other. It's like, well, why don't we just like have sex with this other older couple instead? And they start doing that for a little Mm -hmm. bit. They start having, you know, a a bit of an orgy, but they interrupt. It's like, no, we're... Are we doing this because we're into this? Or are we doing this because we hate each other? Mm. Uh, and then, while well, they're sort of sitting on the beach, pondering how much they hate each other, <laughs> fellow comes up and uh, has like a baggie of some drug, mm. and sort of drops it at their feet. It's like, man, this drug will just open the doors of your perception. And he swims out into the ocean and disappears. <laughs> and she's like, "Did that guy just die?" And the guy's like, no, 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 we have a gift here. We can sell whatever this drug is and be really rich and start our marriage off on a good foot. Yeah, this is a great relationship. Things are going great. And he's like, but first we have to sample it. So, of course, because the smartest thing to do is if a guy drops a bag of drugs in front of a beach, the first thing you do is put it in your body. That's yeah, the yeah. wisest course of action. Yeah. So it goes um, to waste otherwise. Yeah. Uh, they take it. They black out. Uh, they wake up and... Clearly, they've had, like, room-trashing sex. Ah. It's been really, really great. And, and there's, like, claw marks down his back, and furniture's knocked over. But they have no real memory of it. It's like, what is going on here? They realize that they've kind of captured something, though. Hmm. Maybe there is some chemistry here. They just need to, you know, take this drug and unlock something. So they try it again. Hmm. They wake up with bite marks on their body. Maybe you see where this is going now. Starting to. <laughs> this is a cannibal movie. Ah. Uh, they, they begin to uh, become a little bit more animalistic and voracious each time they take these drugs. They black out each time, but they wake up and eventually, yes, of course, there's blood and there's dead bodies and there's yeah. chunks bitten out of people. And, Where's uh, that Hangover sequel? Right? Hmm. This is way better than The Hangover. So, <laughs> I saw this as part of a, a horror film festival last year, and it was my favorite film at the festival. Okay. Uh, because it just really delves into how horribly unsettling this is. I've seen a lot of cannibal thrillers. Uh, cannibalism Things is... Things Whitney said for $500, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> seen a lot of cannibal movies. There's a lot of movies about cannibals. Um, Haven't we all? 
I've always thought cannibalism is like a like one of the more ridiculous taboos. Like, oh, hey, it's a friend. Oh, I ate him. Like a friend is. <laughs> I guess also, you put it that way. It's ridiculous. A, a friend is also the, food. There's a weird slapstick element to, 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 to cannibalism. Eaten friend. It's not that funny, but I, I suppose not. <laughs> but it's also something really unsettling. You know, mm. the, there's a um, a short film that showed in the film uh, uh, Lucky McKee's film May. Uh, it was actually a pre-existing short film called Jack and Jill that May watches in the movie about these two lovers who are in the Tommy uh, Tommy James film uh, or song Hanky Panky is playing on the soundtrack and okay. it's two lovers in this kind of 1950s picnic and they start making out and they're kissing and being kind of flirty and then they start eating each other mm. like they start taking big bikes but even as they like sort of bleed and rip each other apart they're still kind of sort of laughing and having a good time about it okay. really fucking disturbing yeah. So yeah, there's a really disturbing element to uh, cannibalism. This one leans really hard into that. Mm. And how uh, af- as time passes, as they become a little bit more animalistic, she starts to realize these things about herself. Mm. About how, wait a minute, maybe this is like the true me. Yeah. I, I am I've been unlocked. This, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't have that weird arch mythology like something like um bones and all if you remember that film yeah where there's uh, almost almost like that's a superhero community or something yeah like, like that like the cannibals all have like smell you from yeah they, they have, the like, sound, they, there's yeah. like all of this rules and they have superpowers it's a weird fucking but, movie it's a really i appreciate how weird it is yeah that's but, a weird fucking movie yeah, yeah. <laughs> luca guadagnino's cannibal romance um this doesn't have that angle to it it's not about something romantic as being unlocked something very dark has been unlocked yeah uh because you're eating humans like raw yeah. while they're still alive i feel like uh, I feel like you could cook them is uh, there yeah. is there no kitchen in the hotel room do they not have a little kitchenette no that's not that kind of movie well uh, it could be that kind of hotel yeah oh uh, who, who's it was it antonia bird who did that film uh ravenous yeah yeah, that's that, a fun that, cannibalism. That's movie. a fun cannibalism because they do because they, they, they do, do like, treat it like superhero cook, stuff. They, it's, it's superhero stuff, and they actually like cook people. It's like, oh, I made stew, and it gives me superpowers yeah. out of a friend. <laughs> yeah, ravenous kicks ass. That's one yeah, of the ravenous is pretty fun because yeah. it, it's like a little bit dark, but it's also a little bit silly. Uh, yeah. there's no silliness to do not disturb. Yeah. It's just disturbing. So again, uh, it, inaccurate. It's, it's a little bit. It's one of the more unsettling movies I've seen in a while, and it takes yeah. a lot to unsettle. It really does yeah. take a lot to unsettle Whitney. He lives. <laughs> he lives for that. So I, I, I look for that. I, I have. I have one taste bud left, and I need spicy food to, to activate it. Is this in theaters? It's on VOD. It's on Shutter. Uh, it's. It's. I it? think it's on streaming now. Okay. Um, cool. Let me look up where it can be found. Actually, yeah. I don't know. Because this, I, you you sold me on this. I want to see this. Yeah, um, so this was not on my radar before I missed it. I don't know. How. Yeah, it's it, well, it's not on anybody's radar. It's getting this really kind of under the radar. Well, that's why we're here, yeah. isn't it? Um, you know, we're trying to you know mm-hmm. spread the word of movies, especially movies. Of life, Unfortunately, of this is um, the second film in as many weeks that's called "Do Not Disturb." There's another. I think there's like an. I think it might be an Argentinian film, but um, mm-hmm. that's happening a lot yeah. lately. I there's a there was a thriller I really loved on Shutter that came out earlier this year called Influencer. Mm-hmm. Wonderful Hitchcockian thriller, really, really great. Uh, and then there's another thriller about influencers that's coming out, I, th- I think, next month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's called, like, Influence, but um. or Influences, but uh, apparently like, there was a typo in the email and they actually called it Influencer. Oops. <laughs> and I was like, you're just re-releasing Influencer? I mean, good, I'm glad. It- oh, it's a new mo- Oh, it's a new movie. I- you- you got- we gotta stop. There's so many words 
<laughs> and, and, and it's in the history of humanity. There's so many words. We, we really got to stop doing the exact same titles over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're, 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 we're just confusing things for no goddamn reason at this point. Um, anyway, I have one mass movie and it is not related to Do Not Disturb. Well, it's about food. That's uh, Good Burger <laughs> 2. That is not the secret ingredient of the Good Burger. Is, is there cannibalism? In- <laughs> no, that would be a very different movie. Do, uh, do, do they make a Kell Burger? <laughs> Good Burger 2 is the sequel to a cult favorite comedy from the 90s called Good Burger, which was uh, based on a sketch, a popular sketch from a Nickelodeon sketch comedy show. I think it was called All That. All That. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which starred Kenan Thompson and Kel Mitchell. Kenan Thompson... Uh, has gone on to become the longest-running cast member in Saturday Night Live history. He's been on the show for over two decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kel Mitchell has not. Uh, his, even though he's very funny, uh, his career never really took off the same way. Uh, he's done a bunch of TV, but never really you know, hit the big time after well, the I mean, Keenan and Kel days. Well, I know oh, he was in Mystery Man. I was about to say, it was The Invisible Boy. Ah, yes. That hit film that everyone likes except us. Look... <laughs> no, Everyone should watch Mystery Men. I love Mystery Men. It's, it's it, a wonderful motion picture. I'm just it, saying, it, it is a one, one of the best, if not the best, superhero film ever made. It and didn't I stand send by it. anyone's career into the into 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 orbit, except maybe mm. Michael Bay. Because um, no, he'd already done Armageddon. Never mind. That was that would have been Look, funny, but Ke- it, it it wasn't. Kel Mitchell has like he 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 was. I know um, mm. Keenan yeah. has broken records. I think he's the, the longest-running uh, Saturday Night I literally Live just said that. But Kel is... The point is, he's doing one show for a long time. Yeah. Kel is doing every show for a long time. <laughs> he's Like, he shows up in one episode of everything, and he's, yeah. I think he's worked pretty consistently. Well, he's very, very funny. I just think mm. he's just not as much of a name uh, now as Keenan Thompson is. So, uh, it's cool to see them back together. Good Burger was a story about... Uh, Keenan Thompson was in high school. He's very excited for summer break, and then, like, as soon as he gets out of school, he r- runs into his like teacher's car, mm-hmm. and now he has to pay off the damages before the end of the summer. Or he's going to be in big trouble. So he has to get a job. He gets a job at a local burger joint called Good Burger. But wouldn't you know it? Uh, a big corporate burger joint opens across the street, and they have to compete with that. And that's Spon- you're talking about SpongeBob. I, that's SpongeBob. That's used cars. It's it's mm. been done a million times. Um, there's and there's a wacky comic relief character in this very broad comedy. So I guess that they're all comic relief. But there's an especially comic character uh, played by Kel, uh, who is a big old goofball. He's very very sweet and funny, and he invents this secret sauce uh, to put on the good burgers, and that makes the good burgers especially <laughs> delicious. Stop it. It's a- it's a secret formula. This is SpongeBob. I know. Still talking about SpongeBob. I SpongeBob came after this. SpongeBob ripped Good Burger off. Fair. Probably. Um, anyway, they compete with the thing. There's a bunch of wacky shenanigans, blah, 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 blah. It's been like 25 years. And I guess there was enough interest that they made a Good Burger 2. They didn't put it out in theaters. They put it out on Paramount Plus, where movies go to die. But... <laughs> But at least, oh no, that's Peacock, I guess. It's like... <laughs> that's it's stars. A, but no, like, Paramount Plus is where movies go to convalesce. Um, <laughs> They've been injured and they have to recover. Yeah. Um, so I, I haven't really heard anyone talking about it, even though I know a lot of people who love Good Burger. And I like Good Burger a lot. I think it's probably the closest, like, late 90s equivalent that that generation had to Better Off Dead. 
Just that uh, kind of like, it, it doesn't have the edge that Better Off Dead has, but mm. it has that kind of, it's a world you recognize, but everything's heightened and kind of wacky. Yeah. Um, so they're back. Uh, Keenan Thompson, in the years that uh, uh, followed, uh, became a failed entrepreneur and a lot of inventions that didn't work out. Uh, he invented uh, a formula that could fireproof your house. Okay. Uh, and to prove it, he's going to set fire to this house. Oh, it didn't work. <laughs> Isn't that cute? Yeah, you kind of see where it's going from there. Um, <clears throat> so now he's in dire financial straits. He lost a lot of his sister's money. And he's got to get a job. Fortunately, Kel still works at Good Burger. <laughs> so he goes back to Good Burger, where Kel is... Um, <clears throat> it turns out, A, he hasn't changed a bit. Uh, B, the restaurant hasn't changed a bit. And C, when the owner of the restaurant died, he left it to Kel, so he's technically running the place. Oh my god. <clears throat> but he doesn't know how to do that, so he's hired a manager to manage him. So the manager is like this like 18-year-old kid who just like got in off the street. And now Kel is just kind of wandering around being a big old goof. Uh, he's also married and has kids. And lives in a house that looks like Good Burger. Oh no. <clears throat> There's a really... Maybe the funniest... This is... This is not a great joke, but it's the joke that got me. It's such a Marx Brothers type fucking joke. Kenan goes to Kel's house, he meets his wife, and he's like, oh, and this is uh, this is my wife, she's a trapeze artist. And he's like, oh, well that makes sense, someone from the circus would of course marry Kel. It's like, no, 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 I paint trapezes, and they have pictures of trapezes all over the uh, house. Uh, and I was like... Well, okay, well done. That's, that's, that's good, clean fun. Um... It turns out there's a, a big corporation that wants to franchise Good Burger. And Keenan realizes that Kel will never do this because he's such a purist and he doesn't care. Uh, so he convinces his friend to do it because he can, like, siphon off that money. And he's, he hasn't learned a goddamn thing. Oh. Sure enough, the corporation turns out to be evil. And they're going to build, like, a whole bunch of Good Burgers with a whole bunch of robot Kells working at them. <laughs> Which is, is, is funny and they don't do enough with it. But there you go. Um... Here's the thing with this movie. I, I'm really interested. I wish I wish I could talk to the filmmakers of this because I'm very mm. fascinated by this. Because Good Burger isn't the kind of nostalgia property that I think a lot of kids still know. Yeah, you know, it's not like Transformers, which has been rebooted so many times. Kids oh, no, the, know Transformers. This is for know? adults who well, that's the thing. Saw Good Burger when they were kids. It, well, theoretically, yes, but this is why I think it's interesting. It's definitely not for for modern kids. It's definitely for modern adults, but. Good Burger was very, very much a movie that catered towards a kid humor demographic. It wasn't yeah. like a film for adults that kids could enjoy. It was a film for kids, targeted at kids, had very childlike sensibilities. Mm. Uh, and that's what makes it sweet. That's what makes it good. I like that so movie. It's a Nickelodeon film. Yeah, yeah. It, and it's one of the better Nickelodeon films. I think it's really good. Um, good Burger 2 is clearly designed only for the people who remember Good Burger, but... The movie has not grown up with them. Hmm. The movie is still Good Burger. Yeah. It's still lo-fi and dorky and has very silly jokes. The half of them don't even land, but you just appreciate the effort. Mm. You know, it's just, it's designed for kids to enjoy, but only for adults to see. <laughs> and I'm fascinated that that's what they decided to go with. They didn't decide to like, you oh. know, like, oh, well, adults now, we're all cynical. Nope, we're still the same dorks. I, I'd, I'd be interested to know, like, how a kid would react to this. But, yeah. um, but the 
probably watch I, it okay. It doesn't look like they have any connection to it. Like, you I, know? I think the problem with revisiting a lot of these properties is when, when you come back to a, a classic character when they're older, yeah. or even in their old age, like, say, Indiana Jones even. Sure. Um, you will have to face the fact, A, that they're mortal, that they're getting yeah. older, but more importantly, the life they lived in that adventure film mm-hmm. leads to ruin. Mm-hmm. Uh, being Indiana Jones isn't fun when you're 80 because mm-hmm. you've like probably suffered a lot from being punched and murdering all those people. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons yeah. why the more recent Rocky movies have been so mm-hmm. good, is they leaned into that. They yeah, acknowledge yeah. that and they use that for drama. It's like, uh, I, I know... Um, Samuel L. Jackson is in his 70s at this point. Yeah. He's still playing Nick Fury in those Marvel movies. And, yeah. and uh, I didn't see the film but, or the, the series, but he was just star of a show called Secret Invasion. It sucked. <laughs> that, it that's, really what I, that's, yeah. that's what I've heard about it. But I yeah. understand a, an element of that was he's like old and miserable. Yeah. Because he's just fought aliens and has nothing to show for it, you know. He's, he's just trying to this... play it off like a Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy kind of thing. Like you've been doing this for so long, it's yeah. taken its toll. You're an old man now, blah. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's, it's also its about how he's still a badass, so it kind of doesn't really uh, work. So. Okay, well maybe that's not a good example. And now they're kind of they're kind of trying to have the cake and eat it too. Yeah, and and I, I was really surprised when uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music came out. Yeah, it was a, yeah. that uh, that it had any fantasy elements at all yeah i i think i said this when we reviewed it i expected it to be just these guys in their 50s living in san dimas california thinking about their glory days about the time they went time traveling but now their lives are just sort of drab and depressing because they're 50 Mm -hmm. they're kind of raising kids and they can't keep things together and they never change the world like they expected to you know the way idealism dies in adulthood (laughs) i thought the movie was going to be about that yeah that would work, though. And, and, but that ended up being like, they go to hell, and there's time travel, and all these fantasy characters. It's actually a good movie. I like that one. I think it's fine. I, yeah. think, it's I, I think it strains against yeah. its budget. And, oh, yeah. yeah. That's the biggest problem with it. It's yeah. way too cheap. Yeah, like, <laughs> like it, was, it had big ideas that yeah. it couldn't handle with the budget it had. Yeah, they and, refused and, to rewrite it, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to write anything cheaper. <laughs> and, and I don't know why Keanu Reeves felt like he didn't have to show up for that movie. He didn't perform at all. Just, a- Alex Winter's there for it. Oh, he's, Alex Winter's yeah. going wild. Mm. Keanu Reeves is just playing chill. Just, yeah, like, just like, like Ted got way more chill. He's like, not playing all. Ted. He's just playing Keanu Reeves on the set that day. Wow. Um, not that he's ever been a great actor, but uh, eh, he's had a couple of moments. Uh, yeah, you, 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 if you hone a role, especially down to for him, yeah, that is cut a lot of dialogue. Then you got a good role for him. Okay. That's why he's good with John Wick. You know, John okay. Wick's kind of a stoic character, and he's good as John Wick. I think we're all forgetting. I love you to death, but okay. Oh. he's wonderful, and I love you to death. Okay. Okay. Should have been Oscar nominated. I love you to death. But uh, you catch up with these two guys who worked in a burger joint when they were teenagers, and they're still all about burger joints. Yeah, uh, that that's a little bit sad. It should be, but I, I in this like, case, it's uh, kind of heroic. Well, I, I feel like uh, when Kevin Smith made Clerks too, yeah. which sounds like similar material, these people who worked, you know, kind of a dead end job in their early twenties. You fast forward, you know, fifteen years, still working dead end jobs, but then they realize. That's also where their happiness was. Yeah, that's the thing. But that's the thing with Good Burger is mm-hmm. is Kel in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, he's happy. Mm-hmm. He, he, this is not a story about how Kel goes on a journey. Oh. This is a story about how Kel was perfectly happy until his friend, who was never satisfied, wrecked everything and had to unwreck it. Uh, this is a story about someone who had equilibrium. Mm. Someone who's actually kind of wise, <laughs> like he's he's like a, a Zen he's, master. He's a goofball, oh. but he's content. He doesn't need more than he's got. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I I love his character actually, and I think even even though he's still working at a fast food joint, that's all he wants. Mm-hmm. Who does, who's to say he needs more ambition than that? Someone's got to do it. Like he's enjoys his life, yeah, deeply. He has kids who love him. He has a wife who loves him. He's got a community of people who think he's wonderful, even though he's a dork and does incredibly ridiculous things constantly. Um, there's something vaguely profound about Kel in this movie. Uh, and I kind of think that's sweet. I think that there is something to be said for those movies, like The Clerks, for example, where, oh, you're still doing the same thing. Isn't that sad? Mm-hmm. And on some level, that's the movie kind of fighting itself, saying, mm-hmm. if we're going to come back to these characters and we want them to revisit them doing the things that we love, then they can't have grown. Yeah. And that's tragic. And, tra- and that's a, and a, a sad angle to that. And yeah. in most cases, that would be tragic because most of those characters mm. wanted more. Yeah. That, that's, Do, that's why I like the movie Logan. Yeah. Like, that that's a film that leans into the tragedy of yeah. the character. Because and... those characters wanted more for their lives. Kel didn't. <laughs> Kel was incredibly happy. He doesn't need more than that. I'm not sure. Actually, I think if the movie was arguing that everybody should just be happy with what they have, I think that would be an unwholesome message because a lot of people have every right to want to improve their circumstances, station, job, family, career, whatever. Hmm. Um, That's what makes the world go round. But also, when you got a good thing and if you're content, good for you. I'm so happy for you. That sounds really nice. And there's something to be said for like this movie being about... If we really want to talk about this movie being about something, and I think you could make this argument, uh, it is about the importance of economic equilibrium. Okay. The idea that constantly trying to push and make more and more money and more and more product... Uh, turns whatever you did originally into merely a soulless commodity mm-hmm. and ultimately uh, is a recipe for uh, implosion and disaster. Whereas we have a burger joint. It is successful. It is local. We don't need more than that. We're making plenty of money. Everyone who works here is making plenty of money, at least for what they do. Mm-hmm. If it ain't broke... <laughs> don't fix it. So this would be like, um, I don't know. What if the owner of Starbucks was like, I'm good. I've got this one store. It's super successful. I'm happy. Mm. Okay. There'll be other coffee shops. <laughs> you know, there'll be more local so, businesses. So what you're saying is that it's anti-franchise. I think going to say, so, so Kel mm. is the Wallace Shawn character and Keenan is the Andre character. And they're having my dinner at Good Burger where one is a little the ambitious spiritual one, and one is a little bit more of the pragmatic character is happy with the earthbounds. Except things. the spiritual character isn't ambitious. Well, is it, yeah, the, the earthbound character, the person who thinks he's very grounded, he's the ambitious one. Mm. So you have the spiritual mm. content one. Uh-huh. So this is just like just just like talking to God. Like <laughs> Kel is God here. He's very happy, and the only thing that fucks up is when people fuck up his message. Mm. And I'm fine with that. Uh, you've actually made me like this movie more. <laughs> I was I was very much like it's fine, mm. but like now I'm like, you know what? There's maybe some, this movie is a little maybe this movie is a little great. Maybe there's something okay, about yeah. it fundamentally at the core mm-hmm. of this movie. There is something genuinely wholesome mm. and sweet in a way that we don't often get. 
Uh, I, I'll I, take that. I only recently saw the first Good Burger. Yeah, we did a commentary for Patreon. Did, yeah. yeah, so I've, I've, I've seen it twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Thank you, Dante. <laughs> Our cat's meowing. Uh, the first Good Burger, I, I didn't hate it. I, I yeah. found it, I actually kind of like uh, Nickelodeon's very, very kid-savvy uh, uh, vibe that they yeah. give off. Uh, you look at something like Disney, they're they're clearly making products for kids to consume. I feel mm. like Nickelodeon has a little bit more of the vibe that it's being made by kids. That's definitely, like, yeah. they, they at their best, they pull that off. Yeah. That's what Spongebob it's, feels like. Yeah, it feels Sp- like Spongebob has, yeah, there's this, this kind know? of like a raucous stream of consciousness to the, the better Nickelodeon films. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I feel like that's what Good Burger had. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I maybe would have liked it if I saw it when I was a kid, but it came oh, out yeah. when I was in college. So yeah. uh, it, it came too late in my life. Yeah, it happens. Um, and... Uh, Sorry, it's late. I forgot what I was getting at. Um, oh, you're saying you came to Good Burger late? Just, just I, came, I came to Good Burger late, and I, I feel like I don't have the nostalgia for Good Burger. <laughs> but I appreciate the silliness of Good Burger. Yeah. It seems like an unlikely thing to revisit. It, mm. Even at the time, it would have been a trifle. This feels like I wouldn't some... want to go back to Good Burger. I, it feels but, like something But that's... you're talking about it in a way where we're trying to look at these characters and where they would be if they did grow up. And what happens when a kid stream of consciousness tries to invent an adult? Yeah. And they've invented what it sounds like a very well-adjusted adult. Yeah. And I find that very hopeful. Isn't that kind of sweet? <laughs> it's kind of sweet, actually. I kind of like that. Um, yeah, it works. I, I, I agree. It seems like an odd thing to make a whole movie about, especially if you're not going to... Because it's really cheap. To throw a little money at it and make mm. it like a theatrical release. This feels like some, maybe this should have been like a Super Bowl commercial. <laughs> maybe it would have been right. like the better vibe for this. We're going to do a series of like commercials We're where bring Keenan Kell do a good burger. The... I don't know what it's selling. Probably not McDonald's, obviously. Mm. But like, I don't know. We're selling MasterCards or something. I don't know. It's something stupid. But like, yeah, it's it's kind of weird that they're even bothering with this movie. But it, you know what? Everyone seems like they're having a good time. And mm. it seems kind of sweet. And I think if you like the original Good Burger, it's worth sitting down with. Mm. Um, that's the best I can say about well, it. And, and good on Keenan for being as being sporting. Cause, yeah, because Lord knows he doesn't need him. <laughs> and there's a lot of cameos, especially from like SNL members who look like they literally phoned it in, like they filled it <laughs> on their phone. There's like a montage bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of whimsical, but yeah. Anyway, uh, it's time to review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Uh, how we do it is we review rate movies on a scale of C minus to C plus. Uh, an average movie would be a C, some good, some bad, just kind of okay. Uh, a C plus is above average. Mm-hmm. Those movies we genuinely recommend. We think they're above average, very good if not great. And a C minus is below average. We don't think they're particularly good, or maybe we think they're fucking awful. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to start with Good Burger too. It's a very high C. All right. It's not a C plus. It can. It's it's like designed not to be a C plus. Right. But it's a mild, sweet trip down memory lane, and I think if you're a good burger fan, you'll get more out of it than if you're not. If you're not, I would just say just watch Good Burger. Right. It's a better film, but uh, this is sweet, and I, I did enjoy it for what it was. Uh, let's see. Um, bah, 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 uh, do not disturb. Uh, that's a C plus because it is disturbing. Uh, it, mm. it really delves into something icky and bloody and sticky and gross and delicious uh, about the horror genre. It's it's 
scary, mm. which, you know, is all, all too rare if you've seen as many horror films as I have. So, yeah, I, I really dug Do Not Disturb. Okay. Dante? Okay. Dante well, the, is... The, the cat is making noise back Dante there. has figured out... Oh, my God, he's really doing it. Dante has figured out how to open the doors in our new apartment, and it's kind of just it's impressive about, to watch him work. I've heard that's a genetic thing with cats. Like, doors? Some of them, yeah, like learning how to pull down a doorknob, like mm. only certain cats... Well, Dante is learn how to great do that. at it. Yeah. I'll like close the door, like ah, no cats tonight. And I close the door, and then I wake up, and Dante's just looking at me, and I'm like, "Hey, <laughs> Snuggles? No." I'm sitting there with a cup of coffee and a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so you think you can ditch me? Anyway, moving on. Like Clippy, I see you're trying to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Uh, Leo, the new animated film with Adam Sandler. Um, uh, uh, like Good Burger, I think it's a high C. Um, it's got its heart in the right place. I think it is uh, pretty wholesome for the whole family. There's like one kind of weirdly inappropriate joke that just, they they even mug to the camera like Groucho when they do it. It's like, I don't know if we needed that. But the rest of the movie, it's very sweet, wholesome. There are songs, they're all forgettable. Uh, but the character work is surprisingly good. Hmm. So, you know, kudos. Well done, I guess. Uh, let's see here. May, December. Made is that says C plus. Okay. Yeah, we're, uh, it's a film for grownups. Isn't that mm. nice? It looks at something that could be potentially salacious and actually handles it really tactfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually looks at the the characters and the darkness of this situation and yeah. stays in it. It doesn't shy. It's, it doesn't look away from anything and it doesn't uh, chicken out by turning into a melodrama. It turns yeah. into an actually adult drama and I really really liked it. Okay. Uh, American Symphony, new documentary mm-hmm. about John Baptiste. Uh, sorry, Baptiste. Um, it's quite good. It's not going to blow your mind or change your life, I suspect, but if you have any interest hmm. uh, in these people as celebrities, as artists, uh, or if you just want to watch like an interesting story about people in a very weirdly up-and-down, tumultuous time where the best of things are happening and the worst of things are happening, hmm. um, I think there's a lot to appreciate, and I ultimately uh, just felt like I went on a, um, a, a very human journey. Okay. Yeah, good for them. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Maestro. I guess I go with Maestro. Um, it There's so much good in it that I wish it amounted to more. Mm-hmm. Uh, the performances are very, very strong, but some of the choices in those performances, from casting to prosthetics, are worthy of critique, I feel. Uh, it's impressively photographed. Uh, Bradley Cooper is a very ambitious, interesting filmmaker in a lot of ways. Uh, and I appreciate the lens through which it observed Leonard Bernstein's life was very much based on his inner turmoil and his character, and it's all great. But, yeah, just something about it just feels like, and now I got the gist of that, and I'm good. So, it's, I'm going to give it a C plus, but it's a low C plus. It's just, it's yeah. well-crafted, but I don't know if I think it's great. All right. Yeah. Uh, let's that's, see. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, Saltburn. Saltburn is is a... a... It, it drags too much mm. to be a C plus. It, it's almost there, I think, because yeah. I, I like that kind of uh, salty, sweaty, salaciousness of, of a movie like this. Um, it's called Saltburn. It is salty, mm. and it'll burn you. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a little too long in the tooth. I think it overexplains itself a little bit too much, uh, in, in a way that ultimately hurts the movie. So it's it's a high C. It's mm. not quite a C plus. Yeah, I'm going to give it the same. I think mm. again, it's another one like Maestro, where I guess Maestro's a little bit better, but. The, the pieces are great, but they what do they add up to? Mm. Um, 
I think it ultimately ends up something pretty straightforward for all the effort that it goes into mm. and all the giganticness that it has. Uh, but the pieces are really, really great. It's oh, gorgeous. Yeah. The music's really, really great. The performances are great. The music is excellent. Yeah. The There's music. a couple of very memorable bits. Mm. Um, what was it? What was it? Uh, Ebert said a great movie is uh, uh, three great scenes, no bad scenes. There you go. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's that's that's Saltburn, but I do think there's it, enough meh scenes that just kind of brings it down a little. The, the last sequence, though, is, is it's pretty, pretty top notch. It's, yeah. it's a good way to end the movie. It's satisfying. Um, all right, uh, Napoleon. Napoleon. That that's a low C. Mm. Uh, I feel like uh, R- Ridley Scott's just sort of doing what was handed him. Uh, I I wish he had a point of view on Napoleon. Napoleon. Mm-hmm. There's many many ways you could tell a story about Napoleon. He chose. Something you've already seen, like just reading high school textbooks. Yeah, yeah, it's the classic illustrated version. Yeah, uh, great photography, mm. great performances. Uh, but yeah, it does it does sort of hit a wall at some point and just sort of mm. runs its course eventually. I liked it more than you did, but not enough to give it a C plus. Um, I do think that for as uneven as it is, both mm. in terms of its uh, pacing, but also in terms of like how some characters are written a lot better than others. Um, it's sumptuous. Like it's, it feels like a big watch. It was cool to see this kind of like big historical epic on the screen made by someone who knows how to compose a fucking frame. (laughs) You know, it it looks and feels genuinely big. And Mm. I was there moments where it is enjoyably funny as well. And I appreciate that. I think all in the first half, mostly yeah. And Joaquin Phoenix is really really excellent at it. So it's a mixed bag. I reserve the right to change my review when when the inevitable director's cut comes out. (laughs) And hopefully it's it's like feels more complete than this. But uh, yeah, it's not it's not a wash though. It's certainly got some good stuff. Uh, And then lastly, wish. Uh, That's a C minus. It's uh, I I appreciate some of the things we took from it. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I were more confident in that the filmmakers put that in there, or if they yeah. had like sort of more assertively said it. Yeah, uh, it's actually just something that's like a little off to the side that I think they didn't intend. Mm-hmm. That makes the film more interesting. Does make it much better. Though. It, uh, it, it's ironic that their 100 year celebration is a 100 year condemnation. Yeah, it's like uh, there's, there's a, a, after a century of this, we yeah. we don't like the company anymore. There's a certain Schadenfreude mm-hmm. to be to come from that, mm-hmm. uh, and I you know I'm not above being amused by that. But unlike Dumbo, which I actually think feels coherent mm-hmm. uh, and actually makes even, there there's some bad stuff in that movie too. But at the very least, it's got some vision. Mm-hmm. Um, this doesn't. It feels yeah, uh, it feels unbearably plain from the music mm-hmm. to the characters to the story. Um, it just isn't a fun watch. It isn't a, a moving mm-hmm. watch. It isn't even. It's not even funny. Yeah, it's not even an interesting train wreck. It's surprisingly bland. Yeah. The um, I, I said for a long time there was a, a bit uh, in so C minus for me as well. In case okay. you're not clear, yeah. There was a bit in Disney's history when they tried to do comedies. Uh, they did films yeah. like Meet the Robinsons and Chicken Little. Like they were really trying to Emperor's roll into funny. Yeah. yeah, Emperor's New Groove is the exception because I actually think that like it's ta- funny, it taps into like a, yeah. almost like a Chuck Jones, Robert McKimson kind of energy. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's amazing that that worked considering the absolute disaster it was behind the scenes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it it came like studios were warring over it for a long time, and a oh. lot of things were changed along the way. It yeah. ended up being like a much more minor production than and, it, and it they started. As. The clock. Originally, it was going to have I think music by Sting, mm. and then Sting was like, "I'll do it if I, I might be remembering this wrong. I'll do it if you let my wife do a behind the scenes documentary." Okay. And they said, yeah. Sting ended up not doing the music for the movie. His wife did do the documentary. 
Disney is not allowed that to be released because <laughs> it is a documentary about how fucking shitty it was to make that film. Yeah. 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 Uh, but uh, whenever Disney tries to be, like, funny, mm-hmm. when they try to be, like, delightfully droll or slapstick, mm-hmm. it never works. Mm-hmm. E- even going back to, like, Mickey Mouse cartoons, it has never really worked. Uh, the George Geefe cartoons, notwithstanding. Those are good. I would uh, also argue that the more recent Mickey Mouse cartoons mm-hmm. are pretty fucking funny. Okay. They did a Halloween special that I just... Yeah, I just... I feel like Disney has never done humor well. They're they're like a kid's joke book. They know how a a joke is supposed to be constructed without really eliciting any actual laughter. Yeah. Uh, They they don't just have... They don't have that kind of energy and they keep trying. And I feel like Wish has a lot of that. Oh, she's clumsy. There's a lot of slapstick. There's funny animal stuff. I'm not laughing at any of that. Yeah. The last time I really laughed at a movie was what we talked about, that... Uh, boy band number in Frozen 2. That was hilarious. <laughs> last time I laughed at a Disney movie. Disney movie. Okay, that's what yeah, I meant. Okay. About to say the last time I laughed. <laughs> I do not laugh. I just, I'm full of hate. I'm just a dour, sour I fairy. Feel, I feel like Disney's had... I think Encanto has some humor in it that's actually quite funny, but... Uh, ish? I mean, it, it's more delightful or, or well, that's what affable. Disney's, but that's what Disney's good at. It's yeah. mostly delightful. Mm. Mostly just putting you in a happy place. Mm. Um... But it's not necessarily a specific place. That's something they're not always good at because they're trying to play off of generalities. Yeah. Uh, and this is so general that it just has no personality whatsoever. The personality is what if Disney but bad. <laughs> uh, so that that's a bad choice. Well, well done. They were successful. Yeah, that was right, their goal. There you go. Anyway, that is it for uh, Critically Acclaimed this week. Uh, next week, we'll be back with other stuff. Mm-hmm. We'll be talking about Godzilla. Oh, Godzilla there's minus a new, one. There's a new Godzilla film. There's yeah. a new Godzilla movie. We'll be talking about that. So we'll be talking about Godzilla twice this week. Uh, not just uh, in our uh, Thank Godzilla It's Friday podcast, but also in Critically Acclaimed next time. So that's exciting. Yeah, there's, um, there's that film Candy Cane Lane. Oh, yeah. Christmas movies this time. Does that new John Woo movie open? That's right. Silent, Silent Night. Night. Yeah. yeah, I really got to see that. I'm excited about that. So um, there will be stuff, and by God, we will review it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I apologize uh, for if the tech sounds different or if there's some delays uh, in like our Star Trek podcast. I'm working off of an old laptop, and it's not as good. Yeah. Uh, but I'll hopefully have my new laptop back by the weekend at the latest. Uh, and uh, yeah fingers crossed it'll work out mm. so um, thank you everybody thank you for joining us don't forget you can head on over to our Patreon page patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network to get a whole bunch of exclusive shows you can listen to that Good Burger commentary track we join at that tier and we have a lot of other stuff there as well you can also listen to all of our episodes ad free so thank you everybody thank you thank you from the bottom of our hearts uh, you can also email us our email address is letters at critically it has been way too long since we've done one of those episodes and we'll do it soon uh, Whitney what is our P.O. Box yeah, send us a physical letter to the critically acclaimed network P.O. Box 641565 Los Angeles California 90064 yeah uh, and of course uh, we are on uh, the social medias at critically acclaimed I am at Lee Viviani I'm at Whitney Seibel and that is a wrap for us thank you everybody for listening and never forget everyone is a critic I'm sorry, what? What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. 
head to hero.co to shop today.